This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And if this is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of our boys to the, the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high positions, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad, episode 16. I'm your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khalid. And today, we are going to, I guess, get back get back to some real politique <laughs> topics. Um, <laughs> um, and uh, which are quite spooky and do have a Halloween-ish theme to them, seeing as they, they took place in a certain fateful October. Um, and this is also something that is definitely um, relevant to the month that we're living through right now um, and a term that is being used on probably an almost daily basis for the next several weeks, which is the October surprise. Yeah. And um, and so a lot of people think it, it's almost like a normalized term in the American political lexicon now that, you know, an October surprise is something that a campaign will bust out several weeks before a presidential election that's like a game changer. Mm-hmm. And I, I think a lot of people actually are not – I think if you asked a lot of people – where does this term come from? What was the first October surprise? And I mean, granted, I think you probably could go through American history and find earlier examples of this, but like the the way the term yeah. entered the modern lexicon specifically refers to the, presid- the presidential campaign of 1980 between President Jimmy Carter and former California Governor Ronald Reagan. Yeah. And um, I don't know. I think th- this spawn i mean it's interesting how normalized the term has come as as a kind of you know a tactic or something that is sort of accepted as a part of political reality um even though this specific story from 1980 has basically been uh, kind of totally rejected by the washington press corps and buried multiple times or they have attempted to bury it but then it kind of like uh, like some kind of uh, you know Jason Voorhees it, you know it, it, its hand just like shoots up out of the dirt and it crawls back to life or at least it did for I'd say about twelve years during the Reagan Bush years. Yeah, it's also interesting how the term October Surprise can almost more often than not nowadays denote something that truly is a surprise to both 
candidates involved like in an american presidential election like something Mm. that like changes the discourse of the landscape in such a way like uh you know if uh a mass shooting happens that could be like an october surprise without necessarily having to be engineered you know that would make someone's like pro-gun stance look worse something like that that is true that is true you could think of things like like hurricane sandy in 2012 was one such perhaps and even of course like the benghazi attacks uh were also another thing that had no ostensible connection to they weren't engineered by either side but uh, in the 1980 example, both the fear of an October surprise uh, on the part of the Republicans uh, was that Carter would engineer some kind of October surprise. Yeah. Um, and also, like, the actual October surprise sort of conspiracy that, uh, you know, gave the, uh, you know, gave the term its, its name was also something that was very much engineered uh, and understood to be engineered. Mm-hmm, exactly. Yeah. So it's interesting that actually, yeah, even the original term in 1980 of October Surprise actually originally, you're right, it referred to a fear among the Reagan Bush campaign that Carter was going to do this very public resolution to the hostage crisis in September, October, and basically flip the momentum of the race. And at that time, that was one of the main things kind of dragging him down was was Carter's inability to secure the release of these hostages, which at uh, in one of the books we read, interestingly, that Election Day 1980, uh, I think it was on November 4th, I could be wrong, but it was the exact one-year anniversary of the storming of the U.S. Embassy in Tehran. And mm-hmm. so basically the news media was playing all kinds of retrospectives and devoting a lot of coverage to it alongside <laughs> the election, which yeah. didn't, definitely did not help Carter. Um, and, and the polls were very tight. Uh, Reagan did get in, to lead, I think, over the summer for a while. And so it, it wasn't illogical to project that he might win and become the next president. But Mm -hmm. in September and October, the polls began to tighten again. And I think it's kind of a, it seems to be, it's hard to say for sure whether or not if Carter had been able to pull that off, that he would have won re-election. But I would say that it would have greatly increased his odds of winning re-election. Yeah. And another thing that was really interesting to me in reading like a lot of the sort of materials about the October surprise and the, the sources, uh, uh, you know, that I read as part of the research for this episode. It was interesting to see uh, the Republicans talk about Carter, because I feel like the uh, contemporary idea of Carter is almost as this man who is sort of too naive for the presidency or like too good hearted for uh, mm-hmm. Washington politics. But the portrayal of him by the Republicans at that time was that this was someone who was so sort of politically canny that he would do this, you know, at the last minute and sort of, uh, you know, plan it. And he was portrayed as someone who's very politically tough and shrewd, um, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. is not really the, you know, I think that Carter and- actually was very uh, shrewd politically, but uh, certainly that's not the way that he's been remembered. He's been remembered as kind of like, you know, uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington type, which was yeah. part of his image. But It was uh, part of his know. image. And it's interesting going through some of the, the sources that we went through, how there are these kind of um, that is definitely a dominant perception of uh, from a lot of the people in the Republican camp that, you know, they were they basically it's often said in the context of the, they were right to be worried about this hostage situation because Carter 
you know, all that humanitarian peanut farmer governor stuff was all bullshit, and that he was absolutely going to manipulate the hostage crisis for to to benefit his reelection prospects. Um, but at the same time, there are other people that. Um, that I went through in, in one of the books we're going to be talking about. Uh, there's actually an interview with Miles Copeland, who is a really fascinating and mysterious CIA figure, like an old school covert action uh, overseas cowboy who is one of the top Arabists in the CIA and was actually, I think, at, at some point uh, kind of an informal advisor to uh, Nasser in Egypt and um, I think engineered what actually never gets talked about was one of the very first CIA-involved military coups in anywhere in the world, which was a coup uh, in 1949 in Syria. So he went very far back in uh, the entire Middle East region. But he said something along the lines of, uh, you know, Carter, Carter was this idealistic guy. And, like, you know, the, the reporter describes him as almost like waving his hands around in disbelief. Like, he actually believed this shit. Like, can you, be, can you imagine, you know, like a president of the United States actually thinking that you should do things for idealistic principles like he couldn't he almost couldn't wrap his head around it it was so silly to him so i think carter kind of had like a mix of that stuff going on of course like he had people like zubignia brzezinski as his national security advisor who was like in his own way like an extreme hawk um anti-communist uh anti-soviet kind of hawk and they did they did craft uh, the the kernel of what would become Operation Cyclone in, in basically supporting the Mujahideen against the Soviets in Afghanistan, though, of course, Reagan's administration and the peop- specifically the people that are involved in this October Surprise narrative, like, escalated it to uh, kind of unimaginable levels. But, I mean, Carter, in a way, is kind of that classic liberal where he's yeah. kind of cynical and um, and, you know willing to get his hands dirty a little bit but also still kind of almost for his own psychological edification needs to uh needs to sort of actually stand up for these principles and yeah i think so i think he definitely is idealistic uh for sure but i don't think that's a contradiction with this is someone who has like you know very like you know uh honed political instincts and was like you know a skillful political operator but uh yeah i think and i think yeah in a way i was i saw someone on twitter you know uh the other day uh you know i hope you will forgive me uh bringing up uh just the sort of doom scrolling of twitter but i think that you know many of our audience (laughs) probably do the same thing and i just saw you know Mm -hmm. the same kind of benign point where or or, you know banal point where people are like uh you know saying like oh i understand the republicans you know they're greedy they're uh, but what motivates these Democrats? What motivates Kamala Harris, like, and Pete Buttigieg? Like, it's just chilling to contemplate life. It's like, well, you know, they want attention. They have this uh, self-image that they want to sort of sustain. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they, like, want to, you know, be in it. They want to be in the room where it happens. You know, like, they... Uh, <laughs> like yeah. So, you know, that's... I mean, uh, I, mean, yeah, I think it's it. not it's not um, surprising... Uh, pardon the pun at all that that kind of liberal um you know liberal politicians in washington would be attracted to the idea of kind of playing like the good cop Mm -hmm. 
And, and and to an extent, in certain cases throughout his, it hasn't always been true, but sometimes that has been the case. Certainly, I think if you're contrasting with somebody like Ronald Reagan, um, or as Carter was even doing when he was running, kind of contrasting himself with Richard Nixon, it's it's an easy sell, I think, to yourself that you are a more principled alternative and a more morally upright alternative to this ogre that wants to like nuke moscow back to the stone age or something you know and 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 flirts around with like racists and all that stuff so i think it's um it, it, it absolutely makes sense how they would be motivated and it's just that you know i mean at a certain point you have to sort of leave put down the idealism and take the paycheck and do the quote-unquote right thing for the people that actually wield the kind of long-term power in this country and you can't go against them you know even though like like carter was sponsored by the trilateral commission um which of course was like founded by david rockefeller and zbigniew brzezinski and kind of um but i think in a way and you know maybe someday down the road there was an interesting book by carl oglesby a former sds guy in the 70s called the cowboy and yankee war which was an attempt, I, I read it a few years ago, so I'm a little fuzzy, but it was a kind of interesting attempt to map the intra-ruling class, class conflicts in America from, say, the 1950s through the 1970s, and actually incorporated a lot of, he basically hypothesized that the assassinations of JFK and Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy, etc., were kind of the, the hottest uh, you know, the hottest actions in this cowboy and Yankee war, who, that those were his terms to kind of roughly sum up the two most dominant kind of business elites and ruling class elites mm-hmm. at that time and how they had, while they were both definitely imperialists and capitalists, they had different kind of strategy on how to confront the Soviet Union, how to increase, you know, American power in the world. And so the Yankees were like the kind of northeastern old money wasp banking establishment, which included people like maybe the Rockefellers and... uh you know, the Vanderbilts, the DuPonts, people like that. And then you kind of had, um, particularly down in the West and down in Texas, you had kind of these relatively newer money, robber baron oil millionaires and billionaires who, you know, had kind of come up out of a... They didn't have that old money lineage, you know. Their ancestors weren't on the Mayflower, you know. Mm. But they had a ton of money. And, you know, especially with the sort of later, flimsier... Uh, political systems that were set up in like, you know, places like Texas or California or Colorado or Wyoming. Um, It's like they they basically were able to run these states as like their own fiefdoms and completely control them. So and then, of course, when the military industrial complex exploded, uh, a lot of military bases and industry of that kind was moved to the West. So they found themselves with kind of this power. And I guess uh, one of the things he just like an example of like where these two parties would clash with each other is over prioritizing um, maintaining American influence in Europe, which was like the Atlanticist, the Yankee 
position basically mm-hmm. and then the um the more adventurous uh kind of strategy of the cowboys which really wanted like hot war in central and south america and asia and they were people that were like probably the most vocally in support of a Vietnam War happening. And so to, to whatever extent there was like official sanction for a kind of anti-war sentiment in the 60s and early 70s, um, it was kind of for strategic reasons, um, which, of course, you know, are easily laundered into humanitarian you know objections mm-hmm. to that's why i think maybe you saw like ruling class kids like john forbes uh kennedy or no sorry john forbes Kerry, uh you know go before the senate and like throw his medals down and right. stuff like that it's like was he really like a radical rejecting the system definitely not but uh i think you know it, there's i think it's interesting that the, the anti-war movement was like to some degree tolerated instead of just viciously cracked down on like mm-hmm. with communists and like earlier civil rights activists in the 50s and 60s. Um, but uh, but th- so that's just one maybe uh, an interesting thing to keep in mind as we like dive into this narrative is that, you know, you could say on the one hand, like, yes, these are all capitalists. Like, what do we care that they were all kind of fighting and backstabbing with each other? They're all the same imperialists at the end of the day. But I think it's definitely valuable um, to... Uh, to examine the fault lines in the different kind of um, strategic influence because it wasn't, I I think it's easy nowadays to accept the 1980s and the Reagan policies, particularly the Reagan foreign policies, but also like the economic neoliberalism Mm -hmm. as just sort of an inevitable next chapter in history that just like had to happen because, you know, we had hyperinflation and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the Soviets, well, you know, they're just evil, evil empire, et cetera. And they, well, now people say, oh, well, they were going to collapse anyways. Um, mm-hmm. But in some other books that I'm reading that... At the time, um, nobody thought that they would ever collapse. Absolutely like, not. Know. Absolutely not. I'm mm-hmm. I'm in, still in the middle of reading a book that I think I'm going to cite heavily maybe in our, our next chapter in this series of episodes because there, mm-hmm. there, there, this is merely a jumping off point. Um, but it's a, it's Peter Schweitzer's Victory. And if anybody is like... If the name Peter Schweitzer sounds familiar, it's because... Um, he is been popular like on Fox News over the last few years. He wrote that book called like Clinton Cash from mm-hmm. 2016 right, yeah. that a lot of like right wing people held up as like oh the Clintons, you know. And um, and so that's kind of his uh, that that's sort of his mo these days. And but he's actually kind of a like quote unquote historian. And I had to laugh when I looked up his Wikipedia again recently because he is literally. His job description is he is the William J. Casey Fellow at the Hoover Institute at Stanford University. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and he actually wrote this kind of amazing book called Victory from 1994 that uh, basically outlines the Reagan administration's secret covert operations to economically, culturally, militarily, politically, etc., uh, like undermine and destroy the Soviet Union. And of course, this is in the early 90s. So basically all of the people, he interviews like all of the biggest ghouls in the Reagan administration and they're all just bragging about everything they did <laughs> because they're still like in the afterglow of like, we fucking won the Cold War, man. Like, let me tell you what I did. And let me tell you what Bill Casey did. And you realize that like they embarked on a very specific strategy that I don't think that as much as Zbigniew Brzezinski hated the Soviet Union and wanted to like 
give the Soviets their own Vietnam and Afghanistan. A lot of these things were not kind of in the table. Uh, they weren't on the table as options, as like something that was like responsible or prudent to do. They, the Reagan crowd that is at the center of this October surprise story, uh, they totally kind of changed the ball game. They, they reinvigorated the CIA. They like pumped it full of steroids because Carter did kind of, he laid off almost like 800 mm -hmm. case officers and a lot of the people in the Reagan-Bush orbit were super pissed off about this. They felt like that basically Carter was kind of just like marking time and not being, not playing offense and Soviet encroachment was increasing everywhere around the world. It was imminent. So ironically, these people who hated communism had a much stronger assessment of it, that it, it, it needed to be actively undermined um, mm -hmm. by kind of any means necessary. And I have to say, like, you know, I think what they did was... Uh, um, as we will get into like later, what they engage in some of the most evil shit of probably the late 20th century, but I think it worked. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think we should, you know, take seriously that uh, that these people had to get they had to get into the White House in 1980. They had to take control of the White House to change the course of foreign policy to end detente with the Soviet Union and basically launch a full scale economic, political, and mind war against the Eastern Bloc. Yeah, and I think that this is definitely valuable. I mean, you've often uh, talked about the Iran-Contra events as like a node that, uh, you know, is very crucial in an entire web of different conspiracies and, and different, uh, you know, uh, mm -hmm. ops throughout, like that goes into the past and also into the future. Something that definitely came to mind, I mean, you mentioned the sort of support for certain radical movements in the United States, like it, which is something that I think has a parallel to today. And also, I think that there's certainly a parallel to today. This kind of resembles, I mean, it's not like a very good, uh, it's a flawed analogy in many ways, but there are certainly analogs one could draw and comparisons one could draw to, to Russiagate and some of this stuff. Oh, um, yeah. I think particularly the October surprise scandal itself, because yeah. we've just lived through three and a half years of people alleging basically a, another October surprise that has treasonous implications for the Republican who, mm -hmm. you know, won as a result of it. And yeah. 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 Though I think we will see that it is kind of once you dig into the substance of these things, whereas yeah, I think there's uh, more to it than Russiagate uh, for, for sure. sure. But like, you know, uh, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting to think of it in, in those terms. Um, yeah. And, you know, so, uh, yeah, it invites a slight reassessment of Russiagate, perhaps, you know, uh, but <laughs> well, yeah. it, I think anyway, it does. Yeah. I guess maybe maybe now's a good time to like sort of get into like the 
uh, well, really, like, the what of the October surprise and, like, what specifically yeah. was alleged to have been done. So, basically, the allegations that started coming out really not too much until the late 1980s when George H.W. Bush, who had been VP for two terms, was running for president, a number of people started coming out and making claims about uh, certain suspicious activities of Reagan-Bush campaign officials in the fall of 1980 in the final stretch, pretty much exactly where we are right now with our election, um, where it was, and it was neck and neck in the polls. And the allegation is that basically uh, William J. Casey, who was uh, Reagan's uh, the Reagan Bush campaign manager, and um, I know we've mentioned him before, but he was a he was an OSS veteran in World War II. Um, went on to have like a ton of government positions, and then of course after Reagan won, became his CIA director from '81 until he uh, suddenly got a brain tumor and died in 1987. But basically, he's the central figure in the, these allegations, that, which are that he basically flew over to primarily to Paris in October 1980 and held a series of clandestine secret meetings with Iranian officials, specifically re- representatives of Ayatollah Khomeini's uh, new government, and basically struck a deal to give Iran... Um, anywhere from between the numbers vary but like between 50 and 150 million dollars worth of weapons and military equipment in exchange for Khomeini and the Iranians not releasing the hostages from the U.S. Embassy until after the election and thus I mean and basically you know as as we've already mentioned that there was a perception that if that if Carter was able to do this, that he would get a bump in the polls and that people would probably reelect him. But mm-hmm. if they didn't, then he would look like a weak failure and Reagan would win. And then in exchange for the Iranians doing the Republicans this favor, they would get a big stockpile of weapons and military equipment that they needed that actually had been already purchased by the Shah's government. But then when he was overthrown, they were held in American military facilities like on the East Coast. And basically, so they had this huge warehouse of military equipment that Iran needed. And uh, the Republicans said, well, hey, you know, we'll, we'll give all that stuff to you. Um, if you hold off and, yeah. you know, make make Carter lose, basically. And yeah. um, so, I mean, and then, of course, like, I think the first thing that people ever noticed way back in 1981, and, like, I remember learning this in grade school and being psyoped by it because it just <laughs> sounded, it, it's like, you, you know, it, it's such a Hollywood ending where basically, like, 20 minutes after Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president on January 20th, 1981. All of the U.S. hostages were freed by the Iranians. Yeah. And the the um, story at the time that is still in, I think was in my like middle school history books, <laughs> is that the Iranians were so afraid of cowboy wow. badass Ronald Reagan riding into town on his horse that basically they, you know, they, they basically, they shook in their tunics and decided to just, like, release the hostages. Like, 
10 minutes after Reagan got sworn in because they're afraid he was going to come, you know, pound Tehran into wow. dust or invade <laughs> them or something like that. And wow. so it was meant that the Republicans, you know, used the, it, it sounds not unlike something somebody would say about Trump today. It was mm-hmm. like, yeah, he's yeah. so strong that they were just afraid of him and blah, about blah, blah. ISIS or something. Yeah. Like yeah. He defeated <laughs> ISIS instantly. Yeah. Like Obama <laughs> just wasn't trying hard enough because he was a Muslim or whatever. And yeah. like once yeah. Trump, you know, did it. Yeah. Exactly. Were, exactly. Yeah. So that would that became um, part of the lore of Reagan that like there's a new sheriff in town and he's not going to take she's going to get pushed around like nerdy little Jimmy Carter and uh, even our enemies are going to have to respect us because we're not we're not a bunch of pussies anymore you know yeah. um, and and of course you know the Iranians have done a very good job of kind of humiliating America for the year that they held these hostages. Yeah. I mean, they would like use American flags to like pick up trash around the compound. They would put these hostages on TV blindfolded and kind of, you know, make them like read like revolutionary, you know, pronouncements and stuff like that. I, I think they might have made them do that, like denounce America and things like that. Mm-hmm. It was just like a very big kind of PR nightmare as well as a geopolitical loss for, you know, this is the, the most populous country in the Middle Eastern region that we were incredibly strong allies with mm-hmm. for almost, uh, for, yeah, yeah, for like over over 20 years. And, um, and this just, you know, not only was it a huge, huge L to take, but they were just uh, mocking America and making us look like a bunch, bunch of chumps. And, uh, and, but thank God we elected Ronald Reagan because he, he scared him right off. But of course, yeah. at the bare minimum, we know, because we now know that Iran-Contra was exposed, that uh, even if you totally discount the October surprise narrative, that that really that had to be bullshit <laughs> on so many levels. Yes. Uh, of course, yeah, it goes on with, like, the typical... Yeah, I mean, it really is, like, uh, it's a hilarious, but it's one of those many, like, mainstream narratives like that people just don't question, like, kind of like Betsy Ross and the American flag, as we discussed in our uh, episode on 13, episode 13. Um, which is on 13 but yeah like uh the idea of like the malaise speech you know jimmy carter Mm -hmm. was just he was negative about america you know and ronald reagan came in he had a positive attitude and he like showed everyone what's what but yeah you uh you talk about like how this sort of it's interesting to sort of follow the path of this uh story this idea because as you say it didn't really come out until some years after it happened uh like the it didn't enter the mainstream at least it really uh, a lot of the initial discussion of this was actually like in the LaRouche sphere. Uh, yes, it was. You know, it was. Yeah. Um, and one of he the was main, a, yeah. a very prolific uh, promulgator of conspiracy information in the 1980s, yes. which I, he probably deserves his whole own episode because he does pop up in several of these scandals, and he definitely had it out for. He was one of these people uh, that kind of had a soft spot for Ronald Reagan, but like despised George H.W. Bush Mm -hmm. and and saw them as kind of, you know, he was a usurper that wiggled his way onto the Reagan ticket. And Reagan was kind of a, uh, you know, maybe a, a kind of honest actor and trying to introduce some kind of like strong Hamiltonian economics like back to America yeah, or something. Yeah, it's interesting. That's something, uh, again, a pattern that we see repeated now where people are like Trump, you know, the people around him like are venal, like insiders, like but Trump is like, you know, this, he's good but, you know, same sort of like thinking uh-huh. with those yeah. types like kind of does repeat, but yeah. So, so he mean, started he started floating the earliest versions of or his, his executive intelligence review uh, yes. publication. 
Yeah, uh, and what uh, really gave it a boost was uh, when Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, who was mm-hmm. the, uh, at one time the prime minister of Iran after uh, the revolution, or he was, mm-hmm. sorry, the first president of Iran. First president, yeah, elected yeah. and then kind of run out of the country. And quickly impeached, yeah, because yeah. he got basically into trouble with uh, the clerics or uh, the mullahs, as they're uh, <laughs> called. Uh, you know, they started to be called around the time uh, of these events and uh, mm-hmm. have been called ever since. Um, mm-hmm. You know, uh, just very uh, idiomatically, um, <laughs> you know, the, the mullahs. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. The mullahs! Yeah. Um, you know, just like with the, the hatred in, in your voice. But yeah. um, anyway, yeah, so... Uh, because he sort of had some rifts with them he was uh, forced out there was a lot of you know uh just chaos in the legislature uh after the revolution as one uh would imagine um and there was definitely disagreement like prior to the revolution and after about like how the system should be organized especially in terms of the division of power between kind of a republican democratic system and one that was sort of governed by clerics mm-hmm. um and yes yeah, so uh he ended up basically being impeached and one of the main reasons why he was impeached was because not only was he perceived to be moving against clerics but he also uh had certain ties with uh, a group that we've talked about before, the MEK. Um, oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, he had very strong links to them uh, afterwards. Um, and, you know, probably, like, you know, there was maybe some substance to uh, the allegations that he had links to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, he... Uh, anyway, so he was the one who eventually, like, in 1987 started mm-hmm. uh to publish uh op-eds and uh imply that there had been uh this sort of agreement uh that took place yeah um yeah and i think that that's when we started to see a whole flood of very colorful characters come out and start to share in this very rashomon kind of way uh their recollections or rumors they had heard about these secret meetings that had happened, um, primarily in in Paris, uh, though there are other also allegations of meeting uh, at the Ritz Carlton at the Ritz Hotel in Madrid earlier in the summer, and then there was also a confirmed meeting at the L'Enfant Plaza Hotel in Washington D.C. with a couple Reagan officials um, and an Iranian. Uh, a mysterious Iranian representative. Uh, but the, the main allegation was that I think it was at the Waldorf, Florida hotel in Paris in mid-October. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, like all these things came out in the wake of the Iran-Contra uh, the revelations that kind of started in 1985 and then became a pretty big scandal, the one mm-hmm. that was almost totally like covered up and nobody was held accountable for but that did i think it there had been mumblings about maybe there was some kind of weird thing that happened in in 1980 but most of the washington press corps totally wrote it off as ridiculous but then when all these reports started coming out and i think it was actually a lebanese newspaper that first reported um that later on in the 80s when reagan was president there were secret arms for hostages schemes i think related to the hostages that were held in lebanon in beirut Mm -hmm. um and uh and that basically even though we were supposedly an avowed enemy of iran that nonetheless we basically brokered i think with the assistance of 
figures in Israel uh, a kind of pipeline for uh, selling, I think in the, the later 80s, it was like Tau, like uh, anti-tank missiles and things like that. Um, because, of course, the other th big thing happening that is really critical to this story in terms of the motivations involved is that Iraq, uh, Saddam Hussein, attacked Iran in the fall of 1980 and started what became the eight-year Iran-Iraq war. And you basically, you start to get in a very kind of dicey territory really quick because you realize that the diplomatic games going on between all these different countries is a lot more complicated than you might think by what their kind of outward political alliances would say. And that's like definitely true for Israel. Um, mm -hmm. And it's also in a strange way, it is true for revolutionary Iran because uh, they basically had a problem after... Um, after coming into power in 1979, the Iranians, where they had mostly U.S. military equipment, but all of it had been held up and, you know, withheld from them after they kicked out the Shah. And I guess at the time, there were things, especially for their fighter jets, that they needed. Like, they, they were in dire need of tires for F-4 Phantom fighter jets and for certain spare parts for F-14s. And uh, to, to hold up their military capacity because they were already anticipating that Saddam Hussein, uh, sensing the instability and weakness, uh, was going to try to seize, um, I'm forgetting the name of the province right now, um, a certain oil-rich province on the Iran-Iraq border and was going to, like, take advantage of their, you know, the chaos and instability in Iran. So they wanted to be ready for that, and so that led to that. But then Carter had announced a kind of total embargo on Iran and said, you guys aren't getting anything as long as you are holding those hostages. And that was one thing that some of the CIA veterans kind of criticized him for uh miles copeland actually said that look like when those hostages got you know captured it's like uh a lot of us in the government weren't that sympathetic because that's just like a part of the job like you you get paid in like you know countries that are more dangerous like i got i got a you know uh i got like time and a half pay when i was in beirut like a you know years back and like that's just the, the nature of the game so you know if you get you know caught by some revolutionary uprising and taken hostage like what that's what you signed up for so um which i think uh in in one of these books that's used to kind of show that the the kind of maudlin like we just cared about getting the hostages out as soon as possible right, yeah. kind of excuses like not necessarily sincere representative of how these like spooky intelligence officials would tend to think about it um yeah or reagan saying like you know i tried to do stuff on the other side you know <laughs> i i really you know i just felt so bad about what was going on and i just wanted to help you know like, as if the all opposite. these republicans would would go out of their way and even do things that were like questionably illegal to basically yeah. deliver a huge win for jimmy carter exactly, and destroy yeah. their own uh, their own chance at winning the presidency like okay yeah. that's very sounds very believable so absurd um, yeah like, yeah yeah, exactly. Like, wh why are you doing this? Like, why are you taking time away from your presidential campaign to, like, yeah, it doesn't make any sense. Like, just yeah. because you're such an important statesman that you need to, like, you know, it's bizarre. Uh, so, yeah, yeah none of these um, guys really have, none of the people in the Reagan-Bush orbit have particularly good 
rock solid kind of alibis or just the things they've said about um like the the things that they did engage in but in a totally innocent way they just don't withstand any kind of scrutiny i mean if you know anything about these figures like particularly bill casey who has probably one of the kind of shadowiest most notorious decept like reputations for being a cloak and dagger old spy man who would fly around the world uh constantly and, and you know this wasn't even necessarily known very well in 1980 but in you know biographies and stuff that were written about him after his death and the way he acted as reagan's cia director i've been reading in this peter schweitzer book he talks about how bill casey had like an all-black like c-130 private plane with like no tail numbers and he would fly around the world constantly with it and do it in a secret way so that nobody could ever track you know where his plane was going and it, it was actually outfitted to be like a hotel suite so that he could like shower and like eat meals and like it had a full bed in it and and also like top-notch uh like kind of radio equipment on it so that he could phone anybody in the world and in an untraceable way and uh and so you know people weren't even though he didn't have like the super spy black plane in 1980 this was definitely in line with his mo to like people saying like i i, I think his his widow said at one point like i can't believe that bill would fly off to paris like three weeks before an election when he was the campaign manager that doesn't mm-hmm. sound like bill but it's like uh, <laughs> everything else i've read about bill that sounds exactly like what he would do especially if this is the one thing that can clinch victory for them of course he would he would go and um and the um so like we we ended up reading kind of like two main sources to kind of dig through which are both interesting in their own ways um the the one that um that i dug through the most was trick or treason by robert perry which was released in 1993 and if anybody knows anything about iran contra robert perry was a pretty big journalistic figure in that he i think wrote the first newsweek articles about the plane that was shot down by the sandinistas in 1985 with eugene Hasenfus, who is a, a cia contract employee that had weapons on it and then kind of started to blow it up. But as he describes throughout this book, um, he eventually circled back to the October surprise narrative. He did a PBS frontline uh, episode um, that you can, uh, you can find on archive.org called investigating the October surprise. I I think that came out in 1992 during the election year. uh, That is a pretty good overview of, his investigation into this stuff but he says that you know he he was kind of much like gary webb who we might talk about in our next iran contra episode like his career was kind of totally marginalized and people started thinking of him in the washington press corps as a quote conspiracy theorist and it kind of really messed up his career and then so in the 90s after all this he started consortium news which people might still read today um that's one of those websites that I think like Andrea Chalupa like declared was a Russian disinformatia website <laughs> after 2016 because they doubted the Russiagate narrative. And oh, no. Robert Perry actually died like right after the election of 2016, mm. so he's no longer with us. But uh, but did did some good work. Um, and the, the other book that we read was uh, was Barbara Honiger's October Surprise, and I think you yeah. you dove into that one more deeply. Yeah. 
And she was a Reagan that. administration official, right? Right, yeah. She was, like, a uh, a smaller, like, public appointee, you know, uh, who worked for uh, Reagan. Um, there's actually, like, this came out in uh, 1989, uh, so a little bit earlier than Robert Perry's book. It's, uh, it, it's interesting, like, because I felt that there were... There's some sus aspects to Honiger. I feel like she got... Uh, taken in a little bit by one of the more interesting figures in the whole uh, milieu of this uh, conspiracy and the the whole Iran Contra thing, which is uh, Oswald LeWinter, who figures as informant <laughs> Y in her book. But uh-huh. I think I actually, relative to what we've kind of been talking about, about sort of like the uh, you know the conventional narratives, like the uh, almost kind of like religious dimension to this, I really wanted to read this one part of uh, her book because I think it gives an interesting sort of picture. Okay. So this is from her fifth chapter, which is called Once Upon a Perfect Timing. Um, and uh, she writes, Two quote-unquote miracles happened when Ronald Reagan took the oath of office as President of the United States. The first was made in heaven, the second very much on earth. As I and other Reagan staffers huddled in the gray chill that 20th day of January 1981, awaiting the moment when everything we had worked so long and so hard for was about to come true, an unexpected and heightened sense of anticipation came over me. It had to do with something more than the joyous initiation ritual we were about to experience. It, was, it felt as if something else, something quote-unquote greater, uh, ellipsis, even miraculous, were about to happen. I became alert. Far in the distance on the inaugural platform, for the first time in U.S. history, facing west to the White House instead of east. Wow. Ronald Reagan stepped <laughs> to the platform. As he placed his hand upon a well-worn family Bible, a, helsh, a hush fell over the crowd. Was this, quote-unquote, it? Was this the, quote-unquote, miracle I sensed about to happen now? But the oath passed without incident. So she's getting this, like, weird feeling okay. uh, that there's some kind of miracle that's about to happen. Uh, and... Something very uh, weird. She goes through the sort of weird uh, West Wingy sort of story where, um, you know, she's still expecting this miracle, like endlessly expecting, expecting it. Um, and she does this weird thing where, um, you know, uh, some staffers on a podium are being sworn in, like taking uh, oaths of office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's in the audience, but she raises her right hand and takes the oath you know, with them. Very, very QAnon, you know? Mm-hmm. So, like, she does this weird thing where uh, she's not supposed to do this, but she's doing it. And then she tries to, like, weasel her way into, like, a photo op for the people who were on stage. And they're like, uh-huh. did you take the oath? And she's like, yes, I did take the oath. And they're like, did you take it on stage? And, you know, and so she kind of has this weird thing. And then later on, you know, uh, she sees the president, you know, and he walks up to her and he raises his right hand and she raises hers and he gives her a wink. And, you know, and she's like, wow, you know, <laughs> it, like it's so uh, it's really yeah. super cue yeah yeah and she's like well was that it um then you know she goes and she's telling the story to her friend uh martin anderson uh about you know how this happened and uh you know uh she's like he's like well that's just reagan that's just the kind of guy he is you know the swell uh fellow but uh then he goes like did you see it and she's like what what do you mean it and what he's referring to is that uh, you know, she actually quotes from Martin Anderson's own book, A Revolution, which I guess is about uh, Reagan, uh, mm-hmm. his election and everything. So, um, everything was perfect. It got even better. 
President-elect Reagan stood and took the oath of office, administered by the Chief Justice of the United States, Warren Burger. Then came his inaugural address. Reagan walked to the podium, and as he raised his head to look out at the crowd assembled in front of him and speak, a strange thing happened. The dark, cloudy sky over his head began to part slightly. Within seconds, there was a gaping hole in the gray overcast, and a brilliant golden shaft of wintry sun burst through the clouds and bathed the inaugural stand in the watching crowd. As Reagan spoke, a slight breeze ruffled his hair and the warm golden light beamed down upon him. Later, a, a few minutes after he finished speaking, as if on cue from some master lighter backstage, the hole in the cloud shrank, the sky darkened, and Washington grew gray and cold once again. Uh, so basically, like, a light from heaven, like, burst open, and, uh, and funnily wow. enough, after that, uh, you know, uh, Barbara Honiger says that she heard from someone, a retired intelligence officer, that what might have happened was, uh, a special kind of satellite called uh, a keyhole. I was just using, gonna say. Yeah, <laughs> uh, used a beam to burn holes in the cloud cover. Uh, which is interesting because later on, Barbara Honiger would become like a 9-11 truther uh, who would yeah. like promote the idea of like energy weapons being used to destroy the Twin Towers. Uh, so it's interesting that even in this book, she has a sort of weird energy weapon idea. But I, I wonder actually... if that, I wonder if there's a link to that, like to, to sort of, you know, validate the, the beam theory of, well, I guess it would be a bummer for her if it was a satellite doing it and not God. Well, she does. Yeah, because she writes even to this day. I believe that the ray of light which shone down on Ronald Reagan as he began his inaugural address that cold, wintry day in January 1981 was a genuine act of God. Uh, but then she writes, but the release of hostages only moments before as he completed his oath of office was almost certainly an act not of God, but of the quote-unquote party of God and of his own. Does so, she mean Hezbollah? Yeah, she means Hezbollah. <laughs> uh, so there's a lot of, like, you know, uh, sort of, like, spooky invocations of, of Hezbollah, like, in, you know, hushed terms, you know, like, in this, like, uh, she writes, like, uh, it is not without reason that the Iranians are considered the shrewdest and most cunning bargainers on Earth. You know, there's, like, a lot of that stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that sounds here. very like, much like, you know, in Russian culture, children yeah, are taught yeah. to do disinformatia at a very yeah, young age. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely like that. Uh, yeah. So, like, yeah, Reagan is kind of above the fray in the book in, like, a very weird way. And also, like... Again, like uh, I think that maybe in the in the uh, Robert Perry book, uh, Oswald the Winter was like an important figure, but a lot of Barbara Honiger's book is based on uh, this guy informant Y, who turns mm -hmm. out to be this this weird individual Oswald the Winter, who was like a Shakespeare scholar, an English professor, who like officially, you know, what they'll tell you is that he was obsessed with the intelligence community and wanted to be a part of it and would pretend to be, but. What seems to really be the case and what Robert Perry suggested in his Frontline documentary, and uh, I think he told me in his book as well, mm -hmm. is that this guy is basically a dif disinformation agent who was there to, like, you know, muddy the pot and sort of, you know, uh, just leak out so much, like, nonsense that the whole idea of this October surprise conspiracy uh, mm -hmm. would be yeah. poisoned. You know? Exactly. Yeah. And, of course, he would jump to public prominence in the summer of 1988 when he called into a talk radio show on KFI in Los Angeles and called himself uh, Mr. Razine 
and yeah. I guess with a very bad southern accent, proceeded to talk about his personal knowledge of the October Surprise conspiracy, and I think said that uh, that Bill Casey, um, George H.W. Bush, Donald Gregg, who was a career CIA guy, and Richard Allen, um, who uh, was a, a Reagan kind of a Reagan aide and loyalist uh, who became Reagan's first national security advisor in 81, that they were all in Paris with representatives of the Ayatollah and they ha and they hashed out this deal. Um, and basically it, it like reintroduced this story into the national conversation in the summer of 1988. And I guess at the same time he was working, he was feeding information to Barbara Honiger, whose book came out in 1989, and uh, even though I guess from from what you could gather that she is very trusting of this source mm -hmm. uh, who yeah. eventually became but was no some one of his like former students recognized his voice on the radio and outed him to journalists. So he was outed as and by the way, just the name like Oswald LeWinter is like the most ridiculous like spy um name that i could ever imagine um yeah actually i read some interesting things because you know he of course was a uh his work was on shakespeare and he wrote like an influential book on shakespeare's influence in europe mm -hmm. and people had speculated that his name his pseudonym uh mr razine was uh a reference to uh the french french playwright racine who was like in correspondence with Shakespeare and, you know, uh, was also a very major influential figure uh, in uh, the, the European theater uh, and definitely one of the major biggest French playwrights of that of the Renaissance that period. Um, but uh, he actually later indicated that the name was a reference to Stenka Razine who is a uh, sort of Cossack, you know, he's kind of gained this sort of mythological status. He was like a 17th century uh, Cossack who would lead, he led some raids against the Tsarist regime, but then he was captured in exchange for amnesty. He uh, was given, an, like, you know, he took an oath of allegiance. Um, but then he ended up betraying them, uh, and he led an army of, uh, you know, in an attempt to overthrow the government. Um, and then he was finally captured and executed. There's a, an interesting uh, opera by uh, Alexander Glazunov from uh, the late uh, 19th century. Um, and in this story, Razine has a mistress who is a captured Persian princess. Um, mm. And they're, well, you know, on a boat uh, on the River Volga. And uh, the princess relates an ominous dream, warning of imminent disaster and her own death in the river. Uh, and they're suddenly surrounded by Tsarist soldiers, and Razine casts the princess into the water, declaring, Never in all my 30 years have I offered a sacrifice to the Volga. Today I will give it what is, for me, the most precious of all the world's treasures. And then, uh, you know, his Cossacks try to attack the Russian troops, but he then tries to use the fact that, uh, you know, he killed the princess to suggest like that you know he actually had loyalty to the the czar try to kind of like you know get out of it so he's like this really like uh conscienceless uh sort of double agent uh huh. and it's like yeah and it's uh, so this is the kind of the guy who he was after. here's a chilling image from another uh a poem about the execution of stempa razine that's from uh you know later on in the, in the 20th century but uh you know, at the end, uh, after the execution, the crowd falls silent and Razine's head, still living, laughs his triumph over the watching czar. 
so this is like you know uh sort of self uh image or the the uh uh, you know kind of uh virtual self of uh, oswald winter (laughs) yeah Uh, yeah this this, is his uh his avatar then a lot of news stories start coming out like abby hoffman co-writes a investigative piece in playboy in october 1988 uh people from the new york times uh are able to confirm that there was an earlier 1980 meeting at the linfont plaza hotel in washington between richard allen and then two guys named Lawrence Silverman and Robert McFarlane, who would become Reagan's third national security advisor and was uh, pled guilty in the Iran-Contra scandal years later, but at the time was working for Senator John Tower, and um, that they they met with a mysterious Iranian emissary at that hotel um, over the summer, and that person proposed an idea of like hostage release, but they were just you know shocked, shocked that hmm. such a thing would be proposed. And they, I, th- it's like reading Richard Allen. He has like the most venomous interview with Robert Perry in his book, where they try to ask him about this meeting. Um, and he like opens up the TV when they start filming him. He's like, I like I I want to declare that like I am giving my consent to be recorded by WGBH Boston PBS Frontline, aka the KGB, aka Radio Free Moscow, and <laughs> like accuses them of being communists. And then wow. basically keeps saying like, I'm sorry you're too stupid to understand. I'm sorry you can't wrap your head around like what we had to do to try to get the hostages out and like blah blah blah. And, and basically says, like, he tells he claims that either he or Lawrence Silverman, like, kind of, you know, stood up to this Iranian and said, sir, like, we have one president at a time in this country. That's not how things work. And you can just get lost. And it's like, OK, um, all right, guys, that sounds very uh, and that they, you know, they even they they insisted upon meeting in the lobby of the hotel. So there would be no, uh, you know no intimation of um impropriety or you know sneaky business but then robert perry asks him like well then why didn't you write a memorandum and like inform the carter administration that you had been approached by this and you're just like you're just too stupid aren't you you just don't get it (laughs) like um kind of things like that and uh so he's a very sketchy but but going back to um to uh, uh oswald lewinter after journalists started digging into his allegations on the radio show, they quickly discovered that on the date that he said he was in the hotel with Bush and Casey and Richard Allen, that Richard Allen had actually been appearing on Meet the Press at that very time, like on that day, 
so therefore he you know his credibility was basically completely shredded uh once people found this like easily available piece of evidence to refute his story and thus uh the washington press corps basically turned against the entire october Mm -hmm. surprise narrative and like deep sixed it and bush was elected president in 1988 and basically nobody uh you know um it, it, it was considered, you know, cranky uh, to basically bring it up after 1988. But there, but there still were, there were other whistleblowers, too, that kept coming out at the time. And these were some of the more kind of shady, mysterious arms dealer kind of figures. Um, do we want to talk about some of those guys? Yeah, uh, I was going to say that it's kind of, it was in a way the opposite of Russiagate. It's similar in some ways, but it's also opposite because it's almost no one wanted everyone wanted to believe Russiagate or at least a lot of people did whereas Mm -hmm. like with this like no one wanted to everyone wanted to like you know embrace uh you know Reagan as like this you know the way that uh he's portrayed in your in your uh, high school textbook you know Mm -hmm. so uh it's interesting like uh, to think of one as a recursion of the other uh but like in a very different context anyway yeah yeah uh, the the yeah. liberal media did not um didn't did not well, no one shine wanted to be a liberal at all like you know it was in 1980 like that's so gauche you know it was yeah. kind of gauche and not cool and not uh cool yeah the the sort of cultural transformation of the 80s definitely didn't help with uh you know it, it I don't know. It just wasn't. There was a lot of pressure, and it does seem to be yeah, in this it's Reagan a way of Bush being era. Negative about America, just like when Carter told people to, to put on a sweater. Put on a know, sweater. Uh, yeah, <laughs> tell people to put on a sweater. It's the same. If you say that uh, there was a massive conspiracy to, uh, you know, manipulate the uh, na- election narrative, uh, or you know, provide arms to Iran in exchange. Yeah. For sorts of even things. though Robert Perry points out that this is like the same Republican party that, you know, in 1968, uh, I believe N- Nixon and Kissinger secretly approached the South Vietnamese government and told them to not sign a peace agreement with the North Vietnamese before the election because they could mm-hmm. get them a better deal. Yeah. And so that prevented LBJ and Humphrey from signing something, which then narrowly like tilted. That's something that maybe could have moved the needle and prevented Nixon from winning. And then, of course, like uh, Watergate, the ultimate limited hangout, um, you know, a lot, lot to dig through with that. But the central premise of Republicans doing dirty tricks to like undermine their opponent and, and sort of cheat around the margins and win um, was there in the early 70s and then we have 1980 so it's almost like okay this is like an honor this has been like an ongoing trend but for some reason the Washington press corps I guess they were too busy patting themselves on the back for Watergate that they just thought that they had solved corruption or something and that such a thing would never happen again (laughs) Um, and they were probably very wrong about that Around that time, I think another person maybe to mention, I didn't get to, I, I didn't get access to like his book, but he too, this guy also wrote a book called October Surprise, I think in 1991, and that was Captain Gary Sick, who is a naval intelligence officer who was working on the national, on Carter's National Security Council as their kind of Iran expert in the late 70s. And he initially denied any kind of, he he basically you know poo-pooed any idea of some weird things going on with the october surprise for about eight years but then after iran contra came out uh or you know was was 
partially exposed. He basically started looking into the Reagan administration's relationship with Iran and traced the Iran-Contra weapons deals backwards in time, and then eventually came to be convinced that like the fountainhead of the Reagan team's association with Iran was found in during the 1980 campaign, and then kind of went out and was public you know went on tv and released this book about it in like 1991 and um he might have even been being duped because uh i f- i think it's barbara honiger that mentions that uh gary sick was in 1980 he was regularly briefing herbert cohen uh of the hoover institution at stanford like we mentioned and herbert cohen was friends with bill casey and prescott bush who is uh, george hw bush's brother um and he also regularly briefed Donald Gregg, who was a career CIA officer, former station chief of Saigon during the Vietnam War, and uh, somebody who was involved with the Phoenix program, and then went on to be Vice President Bush's national security advisor in the late 80s. Um, and uh, and he was uh, sick was also briefing Paul Hens, who was also on Carter's National Security Council, but was also leaking stuff to the Reagan-Bush campaign the whole time. So he might have even been getting plied for information in a way that he thought was not suspicious back in 1980 and then realized later that all these Republicans, you know, may, I think he he was kind of a, a, you know, career military government guy who, like, believed in, like, the American system hmm. and kind of had no no real appetite for paranoia or thinking about you know nefarious deeds happening but by the early 90s basically said like you know now i believe this is true and it makes me very sad um so he eventually had to deal but but his things kind of i mean he was probably one of the only people that had like a, a a sterling reputation that came out and exposed things about this almost everybody else was a very shady international arms dealer um, of some kind and mm-hmm. who would claim to have intelligence ties but then of course like their respective agencies would always denounce them but um but there were uh there were a couple of them including one who um who uh Lewinter mentioned in his kfi radio call which is a guy named richard brennicky who became another whistleblower about Iran-Contra. He comes up in the PBS Frontline thing. They interviewed him, and he's, like, a very weird, colorful character, like this kind of, like, like scrawny, big glasses, like, mustache, like, cigar-smoking dude who, um, who, who claimed to be a CIA contract agent and was an international arms dealer who claimed to be present. Um, he actually claimed this in court. This is a very strange incident that Robert Perry describes. He was actually he'd gone to Denver to testify on behalf of his friend who is a German pilot named Heinrich Rupp who just so happened to have been a young Luftwaffe pilot at the end of World War II and according to Perry uh, remained an admirer a quote admirer of Hitler um, <laughs> well into the 1980s and was also claimed to be wow. a CIA contract pilot who actually later on personally would claim that he flew the plane that carried Bill Casey to Paris for this meeting but before we get to all that, in the late 80s, he was charged in some kind of bank fraud crime. And so his defense called Richard Brennicky to come into court 
to you know um, testify on his character. And in the cor- in in the course of that testimony, he claimed that uh, Heinrich Rupp and him had both gone to Paris in 1980. Uh, I guess when when Rupp's uh, uh, CIA employment was challenged, he said, "Well, no, like we went to Paris in 1980, and we were witness to Donald Gregg." George H.W. Bush and William Casey meeting with Iranians to like delay the hostages after the election. And so the prosecutor and I think it was the prosecutor or maybe the judge, I think it was actually the judge, basically um, was so kind of offended by that that he charged Brennecke with perjury. um, I think in a federal court and basically said, you know, um, uh, on five counts of perjury said, that you've you're lying about you know the president and the vice president and that's uh wow you you see that also in like the the franklin scandal when they like they they slammed all these like teenage kids with perjury for supposedly lying about Mm -hmm. the larry king sex abuse ring and like uh, alicia owen got like 23 years in prison for perjury it seems to be i don't know like maybe like a george hw bush justice department common tactic in the late 80s that was used a lot but in this case it actually backfired because the case um which the prosecutor thought was like an absolute slam dunk he actually called donald gregg in to testify and he thought this would be like a star witness because donald Gregg is like this sort of handsome respectable uh, cia expert but then the defense attorney starts like basically making him explain that like so you like have to lie to people as part of your profession right and he's like well yeah he's like you know if you're in japan and somebody asks you like who do you work for are you going to tell him you work for the cia and he's like no <laughs> and he's like so you lie to people for a living he's like well i guess if you put it that way and <laughs> and um and they also they the the prosecutor tried to get secret service records and flight records for uh for George H W Bush and also for William Casey and they basically uh the secret service was not able to provide definitive documents mm. that showed that George W Bush was like it's like they dropped him at his house in Washington in mid October one weekend, yeah, and then he allegedly like went summer. to a country club. Yeah, yeah, but there's no kind of um, records of that. Also, Donald Gregg's uh, testimony collapsed because he claimed that he had gone to a friend's lake house that weekend in I think Delaware, and they basically so you know it was the 80s, so he basically had no receipts or anything to back up that he was actually there during that weekend. But then he provided like a picture of him and his family hanging out you know by the lake and then they brought in like a meteorological expert the defense did to basically look up the 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 weather reports for like that part (laughs) of delaware that day and found that there was like a cold spell with clouds and rain that had come in and basically that there was like a 90 percent chance that he this picture was taken some other time so basically brennicky got he got um acquitted by the jury and uh like like strutted out of the court like chomping on a cigar saying like i've been vindicated and like blah 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 and so that gave another breath of life to the october surprise story because they weren't able to throw the book at this guy and convict him the jury did not find it convincing uh they thought these guys are sus and it seems like like they just said they did not prove anything beyond like there is definitely reasonable doubt Mm -hmm. with this whole sequence of events um but then 
Um, but then Brennecke decided he got a book deal and he hired a woman to um, to basically co-write his book. And when she was looking through his records, she found a bunch of receipts and financial records from October 1980 that seemed to prove that he wasn't in Paris on the days he said he was in Paris. So then his like book kind of blew up and then he was discredited all over again. And so it's like the it's a constant thing with the October surprise story is that there's no kind of unimpeachable perfect witness that can say that like they were there or whose story completely lines up. But there's like striking similarities between a lot of these different kind of whistleblowers in little bits and pieces of what they said. Um, Yeah. One of the biggest mysteries seems to be, like, which Iranians were there. Like, that's something that, like, no one seems to be able to agree on or really, like, pin down. I didn't uh, see a lot of names in there for the October meetings in terms of, like, which representatives. You're right. Yeah. Um, like, uh, at one, yeah, George Cave is listed, at least by Honegger, as being one of the people who was there. But I think that is an alias of Oswald the Winter, which, uh, you know, he uh, had given her. Um, yes and yes yeah, and uh, and by the way like yeah robert perry i guess we didn't finish that thread yet but robert perry tracked down oswald lewinter aka mr Razine, in the early 90s and he was living in germany at the time and they got a video interview with him where he basically admits like i was hired by four intelligence operatives to launch a disinformation campaign in the summer of 1988 to basically call into a radio show and popularize a version of the october surprise story that had just just enough false information in it that it would discredit the whole thing and that's exactly yeah. what i did and i think he got paid like ten thousand dollars for it mm-hmm. or something like that um yeah. and so it's like then you go back and read barbara honiger's book and he's a huge source of hers yeah and she's kind of taking him at face value so that kind of makes uh it throws some of the stuff in her book a little into uh contention yes uh, but I think that because, like, her book is one of the more, is definitely, like, the more wild one, like, one of my favorite things that she promotes is this idea that John Hinckley Jr., again, like, part of her sort of weird reverence for Reagan despite all of this is the idea that John Hinckley Jr. was a member of an Islamic guerrilla army, which was sort of, <laughs> like, uh, being uh, run by Iran in the United States, which I guess was a report that came out and the time in some in some tabloid like you know she doesn't really even mention the sort of mainstream narrative of john hinckley jr as being like a mentally ill person who thought that he could impress jodie foster by doing this kind of yeah. in an imitation of the movie taxi driver which honestly uh, she, i honestly sounds very like mk to me yeah like well, they yeah, they strapped like, him in a chair and like like clockwork orange like made him watch taxi driver and like flashed him images of jodie foster <laughs> until yeah i don't know like just like yeah. th- but that's the vibe i get more than he was a secret islamic fundamentalist right uh yeah she writes in the investigative reporter columnist jack anderson revealed like to just use the word to use the verb revealed in this context anyway uh that assassin john hinckley had been associated with a u.s-based faction of the khomeini loyal islamic guerrilla army anderson's informant a former islamic guerrilla army member named tony rollini uh which is a hilarious name (laughs) for anyway uh had reportedly told the Secret Service two months before the shooting, only about 10 days after Reagan's inauguration, that Hinckley was planning to kill the president and had been arrested in Nashville, Tennessee, for illegally possessing firearms. Rolini also said that the Islamic guerrilla army referred to Hinckley as Hicks. Uh, and so, yeah, that's uh, hmm. just, like, kind of the stuff that uh, is in there. But because there's so much kind of wacky stuff in there, she also has some of the juicier, more interesting kind of... Uh, 
reaches uh like mm-hmm. one of the big things is the propaganda due uh connection yes. or the yeah P2 definitely want to yeah. talk about that a little bit because yeah. i robert perry i i there are parts of the book that i skimmed but i didn't see that come up as a major thing in his book which i i feel like is maybe a lost opportunity because propaganda due was like so involved in both operation gladio and the iran contra scandal later on so it's not surprising that they were somehow in the mix uh at at, during this you know october surprise thing the rundown that she gives basically i think she does a good job of sort of explaining what this is as well uh it's a rapagrupamento geli propaganda due or p2 for short is the name of a secret illegal masonic lodge founded in italy in 1966 by a rich italian textile merchant named licio geli Gelli, who was the first Italian ever to be granted joint Italian-Argentine citizenship, was an ardent <laughs> member uh, and liaison officer to Hitler's Waffen-SS in World War II. He was. After overseeing the triumphant return of President Juan Perón to Argentina, Gelli returned to Italy and joined the Italian Secret Service in 1956. In 1972, he became Argentina's economic advisor to Italy in Italy, uh, arranging for the uh, purchase of large quantities of arms by his adopted homeland. With the founding of P2 in the late 1960s, Gelli began consolidating power by extracting official secrets from influential Italians as the price of entry to his secret society. These secrets were the ammunition he needed to blackmail additional leaders in Italy's government, military, police, intelligence community, media, business, mafia, and the Vatican to join his organization. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, with the active support and encouragement of CIA headquarters in Rome, P2 began plotting the overthrow of the Italian government from the inside and its replacement by a right-wing fascist dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Around the same time, P2 began using violence to achieve its ends. On December 12, 1962, bombs since traced to Gelli's secret organization first went off in Rome and Milan. Italian authorities identified the group responsible for these active measures intended to frighten voters into voluntarily calling for a right-wing takeover as an elite P2 cell called the Rose of Twenty. Um, so this is all pretty much true. Like this is yeah. all like a, yeah, just yeah. A, like basically agreed upon history. Like that. Yeah, it's happen. been outlined yeah. in multiple books. So she is getting yeah. decent information there. Um, yeah, I, this I, is I, all I, like totally above board. Like everyone agrees that this stuff actually did happen involving P two and these like terrorist activities. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's also worth men- she does mention here on page two eleven that uh, given the importance of Italy and P two to the Reagan Bush administration's secret Iran arms sales, it's not surprising that the CIA's Rome station chief in the early nineteen eighties, Dwayne Dewey Claridge, became a favorite of CIA director William Casey. Casey later made Claridge co-chairman of Oliver North of the National Security Council's critical operations subgroup, a newly integrated intelligence directorate for counterterrorism policy where they worked together on the Iran-Contra program. It was Claridge who supervised the drafting of the CIA's now infamous assassination manual for use by the Contras when he was head of the CIA's Latin American directorate in the mid-1980s and also oversaw the mining of Nicaragua's harbors, which led to congressional restrictions on military funding to the Nicaraguan resistance. So yeah, Dewey Claridge, major sus character, um, who died five or six years ago and actually even has talk about October surprise, but had a strange connection to the Benghazi attacks in 2012 in that I think the the private security company that hired locals to protect the embassy compound uh, were from like a security company run by Dewey Claridge. Yeah. Uh, and he's a pretty, pretty dangerous character, but you can see how um, the these big names are all kind of 
you know, coalescing. Yeah, I think it is significant yeah. that he was she, Rome station chief in the early 80s. Well, she, yeah, uh, Honegger does uh, even make some further connections. Uh, you know, this is all based on the words of informant Y, who is Oswald the Winter. But mm-hmm. uh, so this is what she writes, uh, and he, she even cites him directly in, in this text. Uh, she says, it was a top member of this illustrious lodge, P2, and the former number two man at Italy's military intelligence agency, SISMI, S-I-S-M-I, Francesco Pazenza, Pazienza, uh, with whom Alexander Haig, soon to be Secretary of State, and Michael Ledeen, soon to be Haig's special advisor on Italian affairs at state, reportedly met in early December 1980, one month after Ronald Reagan's election victory. Informant Y, who claims to have received his information in an interview with Pazienza, alleges that Haig and Ladine had both been made honorary, non-Italian members of P2, Ladine in 1980 and Haig sometime before. When the Italian police raided Gelli's home in March 1981, it was Michael Ladine who, at the instigation of Haig and Henry Kissinger, reportedly offered to buy the list of 953 P2 members in an apparent attempt to keep it from becoming public. Henry Kissinger had also reportedly sent Levine to Italy to try to squash an investigation into his and Alexander Haig's involvement in the founding of P2. Oh, my God. Yeah, Yeah, and the, 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 like, the Forrest Gump of, like, CIA covert strikes again. Michael Ledeen, I think, yeah, we mentioned that he co-wrote a book with General Michael Flynn a few years ago and is Mm -hmm. kind of like a psychotic, like, anti-Iranian kind of neocon uh, spook operative and he just pops up like again and again and again in all these different stories somebody on the ground um if anybody wants like a little more we'll do a whole lichio jelly uh p2 episode at one point but i did watch recently there's a movie starring uh rutger hauer among others um (laughs) called the bankers of god or i think it's il banchieri de dio um, that you might be able to find on like Amazon or something. It's from the 2000s, but it's all about the Vatican bank scandal and the exposing of the P2 Lodge and Roberto Calvi, the banker who was, uh, who was eventually murdered um, when that scandal exploded. But it, it has a lot, it ties in with this whole era of like Iran Contra shenanigans. And yeah, the Catholic Church. Uh, through the Vatican Bank in particular, uh, which was run by an American archbishop named Paul Marcinkus, who was from Chicago. And they basically were laundering all kinds of money for, like, mafia intelligence activity, uh, contra, anti-communist, you know, gladio stuff, like, throughout the early 80s. And, uh, you know, I think it's even alluded to in Godfather Part Three, but not, not very well. This is a 
plugs in pretty neatly with all kinds of other scandals that were going on, um, including, like we said, like trading, you know, secretly selling uh, Iran arms, which also, like, I don't know if we we mentioned it already, but the, the whole idea of Iran needing weapons, um, so they turned to a very unlikely partner in that, which was Israel, which, mm-hmm. of course, the Ayatollah Khomeini and, like, the clerics were very against Israel. You know, they were the little Satan mm-hmm. under the great Satan, um, which is correct geopolitically for all these conspiracy people out there that think that, like, mm-hmm. the Mossad runs everything. Like, mm-hmm. um, yeah. this is actually a good example of how Israel actually does work and, like, the role they play, where mm-hmm. they are basically looking after their own interests in the region. So even though they they view the overthrow of the Shah as a great loss, a loss of a great ally and, you know, a, a big national security threat for them, their more immediate threat is Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Yeah. And they're aware that Saddam Hussein is, has his eye on Iran and he might start a military conflict for, with them. So even though they have this kind of ideological conflict with the new Iranian regime, when Iran came to some of their contacts in Israel and said, hey, do you think, you know, there's this American embargo on us under Carter? Do you think you can get us, you know, wheels for, like, tires for our F-4s or certain kinds of small arms and weapons and things that we need to, like, run our Air Force and our military? And I guess uh, the Israeli government under uh, under Begin, right, mm-hmm. um, who was a very hardline Likud president, um, who, uh, you know, very aggressively defended, like, Israel's kind of standing in, like, that region and was really primarily concerned with, like, Arabs. And so he saw that Persians, Iranians, basically, eh, even if they're Islamic, you know, they're, they're very anti-Israel and they're, they're Islamic, like, maybe there's some room to work with them because at least they're better than Saddam Hussein, who's, like, very also very vocally, you know, both Arab and anti-Israel, et cetera. So right. they start they start this kind of setting up these these kind of side deals where they can kind of resupply them. And this this uh, again, like regardless of this probably was part of whatever was agreed to in the October surprise meetings, but it definitely was going on throughout the early 80s, where you had Israel covertly supporting Iran and thus also the US was covertly once these, you know, these deals happened in October of 1980, they were also covertly supporting Iran. And then a little bit later in the 80s, the U.S. started covertly supporting Iraq. Um, You know, there's that famous picture of Donald Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam Hussein. And I think we actually sold them our uh, sold them chemical weapons in the 80s. Yeah. And Abel Hassan Bani Sadr would like heavily promote that idea that, uh, you know, which is a true idea. Uh, But that was something that he would also, uh, you know, make a big point about that the United States had, uh, you know, uh, supported uh, Iraq. He would even say that uh, Brzezinski had conspired with Saddam to plan the whole invasion of Iran in 1980. Um, Interesting. Yeah. Um, And he thought, did he think, did Brzezinski think that would like redound to Carter's benefit? Um, I don't know what, uh, his actual, uh, idea about that was. It's from his book, which I haven't read, My Turn to Speak, which is where he kind of alleges this. 
Uh, he alleges something else, too, which is that Henry Kissinger wanted to set up a Palestinian state in the Iranian province of Khuzestan, which is oh, on the okay. Iran-Iraq border. Yeah, that was um, the oil-rich so, province we, we, oh, we yeah, referenced right. earlier. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. wondering if that was the same one, but... It was. Uh, yes. Um, anyway, yes. Yeah, so, uh, who can really say, but... Um, yeah. So well, I think maybe another uh, the, the other another big character in terms of somebody who comes out in the late 80s and starts talking smack is another uh, or claiming the October surprise was real is another very colorful, interesting character who's like heavily involved in almost everything you could imagine in the 80s in terms of like Western covert ops, which is Ari Ben Menashe. Mm-hmm. And he is interviewed in the PBS Frontline thing and uh, is basically, I think, I saw somebody say recently that Ari Ben Menashe had some connection even to like Epstein. Um, <laughs> and uh, though I don't know if that's another like, oh, it's just Mossad kind of thing. But, uh, but he definitely was heavily involved in being a middleman arms dealer for Iran-Contra. And specifically, I think for the iran u.s covert weapons pipeline um that was happening in the 80s and he was it was sort of fought over for years but he basically was an israeli spy who worked for a department of military intelligence in israel so he wasn't in the Mossad uh necessarily um but this is like a very secret department the you know israeli commanders came out there they tried to say for a while that he was just a lowly translator and he absolutely you know he's just making up all these fanciful stories about being involved in all these covert ops but um his wife who robert perry interviewed did say that you know she went he used to go to poland all the time in the early 80s you know when it was still communist and uh somehow finangled buying like thousands of ak-47s from Mm. i don't know underground private business people or like directly from the military and um and that he had invited his wife to poland once and like she was sort of a witness to these deals and he was just like having a great time like getting drunk with like the i don't know the gun factory owners who were gonna set up this like business deal for him to get like thousands of ak's that i don't maybe we're going to iran maybe going elsewhere but eventually i think the israeli government had to concede that he was a genuine operative and high level operative who's doing very sensitive stuff um but he got he got in a lot of hot water in the late 80s he actually got arrested by u.s customs for trying to sell three c-130 cargo planes to iran Hmm. and then ended up in jail for a couple of years in the u.s and israel kind of disowned him he actually ended up in the mcc in new york the same place where jeffrey epstein slipped and fell and uh, killed himself oh yeah that's right yeah Yeah, and also where el chapo is held um Mm -hmm. yeah he worked for the external relations department of the idf from 1977 to 1987 and um he claimed that the erd had even eclipsed the Mossad standing inside israeli intelligence but he's someone who is definitely prone to big talk and uh robert perry seems very wary of him um Mm -hmm. throughout the whole time um and he's very uh 
he loves speaking these kind of cryptic things and weaving these big stories. And uh, he actually claimed that in 1986, he was instructed, this is a, uh, yeah, he says in 1986, I was instructed to leak the story of secret White House arms sales to Iran. Uh, conservatives in Israel's intel services put out the arms for hostages story as retaliation for U.S. customs, for U.S. customs sting called the Merchants of Death case. In April 1986, customs had rounded up 17 international arms dealers who were charged with conspiring to supply billions of dollars worth of weapons to the Iranian war machine. One of the indicted was former Israeli Brigadier General Avraham Baram, who had close ties to Israel's Likud party. So he was kind of claiming that, like, I was behind uh, leaking the mm. story, I think, to, like, the Lebanese newspaper, which Bob Perry found suspicious because it was Lebanese, but... Um, but but that basically the the sort of hardliners the Likud people wanted uh, to get back at uh, the U.S. for rounding up a lot of their arms dealers. I I can't speak really to the if I buy that part a hundred percent because they mm -hmm. were so entangled. I don't know. Maybe there was more to that. Um, but he he basically when Bob Perry asked him about Iran Contra, he said, "Quote: You think you know what happened." the Israeli said with a wry smile, but you don't understand what really happened. Um, mm. And he also made a kind of explosive claim that this is a name that doesn't necessarily pop up much elsewhere, but he said that the key American official in the early contacts with Iran was Robert Gates of the CIA. Mm. And Robert Gates, as we all know, I mean, he went on, I believe, to be first CIA director under George H.W. Bush, and then he was brought back uh, by Bush's son uh, to be the CIA director in the late 2000s and then was kept on the job by Obama. Um, mm -hmm. or, or he was also, he might have been defense minister, or, or sorry, uh, secretary of defense yeah. um, at one of those times as well. Um, but always yeah. always seen as kind of a straight, straight kind of down the middle, uh, accomplished public servant and basically, oh yeah, okay, so he was, my bad. He was actually, um, he became director of central intelligence under George H.W. Bush and was also the acting CIA director when Casey uh, fell ill quickly in 1987. Um, so for like five or six months, he was in charge of uh, the CIA, like while the Iran-Contra stuff was breaking. And then he became secretary of defense, uh, I believe after Rumsfeld left in 2006, and Obama kept him on until 2011. So um, just a, you know, respected bipartisan guy. And I think in 1980, he was working on Carter's, uh, I think, like the executive assistant to uh, Admiral Stansfield Turner, who was Carter's CIA director, who was mm -hmm. the one who all these right wing people hate because he fired like 800 people. So yeah. he was in a sensitive position, actually, within basically the Carter administration. I think he was also in on the National Security Council kind of talks about Iran and uh, given his like sterling career and I don't know his like bland demeanor <laughs> and his ability to like survive all these scandals without anything ever basically um, coming back to haunt him makes me think yeah I could see this guy being involved um, mm -hmm. but other people have kind of challenged that and said that and eh, there's no evidence that like Bob Gates was um, he also could have been leaking things to the like Bill Casey and the Republicans because um, mm -hmm. he is a Republican at the end of the right. day. Yes. Um, 
but uh yeah i i guess uh ben Menashe, i mean he 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 also he claimed that in 1981 when reagan was in office that uh then Defense Minister Ariel Sharon, future Prime Minister, and Secretary of State Alexander Haig held secret talks to permit American arms to flow to Iran. And uh, Ben Menashe claimed that this established like this big illegal kind of slush fund uh, arms selling program. And he estimated that total Israeli sales for the eight year war, um, which is, you know, selling weapons during the Iran-Iraq war was at 82 billion in sales. He said these deals created a slush fund that he claimed was spread through two dozen bank accounts and stood at about 800 million. Much of that largesse filled Likud political coffers and paid for new Jewish housing on the occupied West Bank. That housing in turn cemented the settlers' political loyalty to the Likud. So, um, huh. yeah, so that's, <laughs> wow. that's a cool legacy of the October yeah, surprise. Cool. Um, yes. Uh, interesting. Yeah. On the other uh, side of the coin, there's like the Vatican uh, connection um, uh-huh. that also was brought up, kind of related to the P2 connection that Honegger also uh, brought up uh, vis-a-vis like the Knights of Malta. Mm. Um, yeah. It's interesting yeah. because like... Uh, a lot of like this is kind of where she gets into some of the uh stuff relating to the kennedy assassination probably we'll get more into the possible links to that like uh in the second part of this uh mm-hmm. iran contra exploration but oh, sure uh she does kind of deal with it uh vis-a-vis uh, uh george bush and his kind of uh what she calls like a uh, operation white rose and all these things but yeah she writes mm-hmm. that um you know uh uh, Alicia Gelly himself, uh, Michael Sedona, Alexander Haig, uh, Reagan Bush campaign manager William Casey, and former CIA Beirut station chief William Buckley were all mm-hmm. also reportedly members of the Vatican's military order, the Knights of Malta. I've heard that. Initiative. I know Bill yeah. Casey absolutely was. Uh, I've heard that George H.W. Bush was as well. Yeah. Um, so given that Knights of Malta member William Casey, Knights of Malta associate Cyrus Hashemi, and representative of P2 linked Ayatollah Beheshti of Iran and a representative of P2 member Alexander Haig reportedly met together on or around October 19th and 20th, 1980 at a hotel named Raphael. It may yeah. be more than coincidental that the residence of Italy's prime minister, Bettino Craxi, himself reportedly a right-hand man of jellies, is on the top floor of the Hotel Raphael in Rome. Although mm. former Iranian president Abul Hassan Bani Sadr has reported that he believes the Reagan-Bush campaign and Iranian representatives met at the Raphael Hotel in Paris, France, it is possible that Mr. Bani Sadr incorrectly assumed that the Hotel Raphael referred to by his sources in Iran was the one in Paris where he was newly exiled. Given Prime Minister Craxi's close association with Michael Ledeen and Ledeen's close association with both William Casey and Secretary of State Alexander Haig, who appointed him a liaison to Craxi as the Department of State, it is possible that the Raphael suite, where the secret pre-erection meeting reportedly took place, was in fact the Raphael Hotel in Rome. When the White House needed to contact Craxi in October 1985 in an attempt to intercept the jetliner carrying the hijackers of the Achille Loro cruise ship, uh, Oliver North asked Ladine to call the Italian Prime Minister at his residence at the Raffaele Hotel in Rome. According to Ladine, Italy's military intelligence service, SISMI, many of whose top officers had belonged to Gailey's organization, P2, knew about William Casey's secret initiative to Iran. 
the CIA's Rome station chief in 1981, Dwayne Dewey Claridge, became mm-hmm. a favorite of the new CIA director, and the agency's Rome headquarters reportedly facilitated secret arms shipments to Iran from Italian ports beginning in the early 1980s. Mm-hmm. According to the Greek new paper, newspaper Demokratikos Logos, Alexander Haig's associate Robert McFarlane was tape-recorded reminding Iranian officials during his late May 1986 trip to Iran, the one with the now infamous cake, that by then Iran had already received $1.3 billion in U.S. arms. Given Hagen Casey's reported membership in the Vatican's military order, the Knights of Malta, and the Vatican's links to Gelli's P2 through, uh, through Michelle Sedona and others, it may be more than a coincidence that the amount of money reportedly involved in the Banco Ambrosiano Vatican Bank scandal mm-hmm. was almost precisely the same figure, $1.4 mm. billion. According to Informant Y, again, that's Oswald de Winter, or yeah. de Winter, uh, some of this uh, $1.4 billion was laundered through bank accounts in Panama, where the Panamanian general, Manuel Noriega, has access to records demonstrating his connection. If true, this may explain Noriega's boast that he had information which, if revealed, could substantially affect Vice President Bush's chances in the 1988 presidential election. Yes, and I'm so, sure had nothing to do with Bush's decision to invade Panama <laughs> and, like, yeah. and, like, storm his palace and steal all of his papers. Uh, yeah, it was uh, secret information on the, the Vatican connection. But, yeah, so uh, she goes on uh, to talk a little bit more about that um, vis-a-vis, again, informant why. But uh, she says that... Um, you know, his source is, or he says his source is Francesco Pezienza, who is uh, Lakeo Gelli's top associate. Mm. Uh, George Bush is himself an honorary member of P2, um, and he became one of the year, uh, he became director of the Central Intelligence Agency in 1976. Mm-hmm. Although the author has no confirmation for this claim, it is a fact that Gelli's Lodge, especially P2's sister, Monte Carlo Comite, has branches in many countries besides Italy, and that the Grandmaster's key targets for membership have been top civilian and military intelligence officials. Well, you know, but anyway. Uh, yeah, so. including, of course, a future, like, a, a ridiculous strongman of Italy, uh, Silvio Berlusconi. Right. Who, uh, as, a, as a media executive or media owner in the 80s, was a member of this lodge. Yes. Um, and also worth mentioning that Licio Gelli was basically like an exalted guest of honor at Reagan's first inauguration. Hmm. Yeah, hmm. so I mean, this is Licio. I was born a fascist. I will die a fascist. Jelly, <laughs> um, who's I love young. How Italians are always saying things like that, like yeah. just, just claiming how fascist they are. Like I'm two hundred percent fascist, or like you know yeah, like, exactly. I mean, somebody um, whose like young biography is basically depicted in Solo, one hundred and twenty days of Sodom, uh, <laughs> is like hanging out with George Bush and Ronald Reagan, and you know, I mean, George Bush. Uh, yeah, like the idea of him being a uh, you know a member of of this like kind of crypto fascist masonic lodge um really makes you wonder like what's going on behind that calm exterior yeah well she uh you know uh going deeper on the bush connection she writes that uh or honiger writes that uh george bush's code name for the secret iran operation was white rose so she takes Mm. this very far uh you know saying the reader will recall that uh the Rose of 20 was the code name for the control cell responsible for terrorism in Italy. Um, so she draws a connection there with the Rose. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, informant Y said that Gelly was behind removing the Shah of Iran from power. Um, but he wanted Savak officers who had joined P2 and who were therefore under his control to stay on as part of Savama, uh, Khomeini's new secret police. But uh, anyway, so... 
uh, there she says that there are two further references to the White Rose that should be noted. Uh, although they have no known relationship to the Reagan-Bush administration's secret Iran initiative, White Rose was the name of a radical right-wing pro-Batista group of anti-Castro Cubans based in Miami in the early uh. 1960s at the time of the CIA Bay of Pigs operation. A source who worked in the agency in the early 1960s told the nation that George Bush was involved in the Caribbean. There was very definite worry that some Cuban uh, uh, American groups were going to move against Castro and attempt to blame it on the CIA. Uh, okay. Interesting. Um, well, yeah, he has been rumored to uh, have been working for the CIA, at least in a kind of uh, non-official capacity with his Zapata offshore oil company that you know, it was just off the coast of Cuba mm-hmm. and then maybe with the JM wave station, um, in Miami, which is the huge CIA station that I think was run by Ted Shackley, um, who ended up, you know, like being a, a close friend and advisor to CIA director Bush. Um, you know, I get, I guess they never ran into each other and they just happened to become best friends. Um, and mm-hmm. of course, uh, Felix Rodriguez, who we're probably going to spend a lot of time on, um, in in the next Iran Contra episode, who was like a close personal friend of Donald Gregg and George Bush, and allegedly used to keep the embalmed hand of Che Guevara, who he personally <laughs> helped track down and murder, um, I think in in Bolivia in 1967. <laughs> That's um, very uh, yeah, yeah. He definitely had his watch. He wore Che Guevara's watch as a trophy, um, mm-hmm. and was involved in the Phoenix program, etc. So it's very um, like hand of Saint Teresa, very very Franco. Um, <laughs> it yeah, is. Uh, it really is. Um, but uh, yeah, well, her, uh, her other connections to the White Rose. Well, there's two uh, connections. The first one is very classic conspiracy theory. Uh, where she says the White Rose is also the symbol of the British Royal House of York, uh, which fought the mm. War of the Roses against the House of Lancaster, whose symbol was the Red Rose in England. President George Bush is related to English royalty, you know, so uh, that's obviously just uh, your standard fare kind of royal bloodline uh, discussion. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but there's another one uh, where she's sort of speculating, like, if George Bush was in the P2, then Lee Shogeli would probably have some kind of blackmail on him because that was part of the initiation as she describes it oh, um interesting so, what kind of blackmail uh, yeah like uh, uh what could it possibly be um there could be a memo written by bush in 1963 uh when bush was already reportedly a cia agent or asset the yeah. nation has obtained one such document from this period a memo from then fbi director j edgar hoover recounting oh, yes. a 1963 briefing given to then-CIA Representative George Bush following President Kennedy's murder. Vice President Bush's White House office denied that he had ever been a CIA agent or asset and claimed that the George Bush in the memo obtained by the nation therefore referred to another George Bush. Uh However, the publication then contacted this other George Bush who insisted that it could could not have been he who was referred to in the memo. The nation also reported that another former CIA employee had confirmed the accuracy of its original claim one of George Bush's first actions as director of the CIA in 1976 was to squelch an investigation by the Senate Committee on Intelligence into the CIA's involvement in the Kennedy assassination. Interesting yep. thing to squelch. Yep. Uh, but, and, uh, oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I could yeah. get really spun off on details of, like, what was George Bush doing on November 22nd, 1963? And yeah. it's very—that that memo was actually uncovered in 1988 while—during the presidential campaign. And, yeah, they did all this kind of hemming and hawing about how it was— was like this other George Bush, and um, <laughs> eh, it's not convincing. Like they're uh, kind of alibi for it, and um, well, and even uh, 
yeah, yeah. he was uh he was in Dallas the night before for an oil conference um mm-hmm. and uh interesting uh, yeah yeah well, well uh, to close uh, yeah to close this loop here quickly uh you know on the 25th anniversary of his brother's death Senator Edward Kennedy paid his respect by placing a single white rose at the foot of President Kennedy's memorial in Runnymede, England. Uh, this act, of course, may be purely coincidental, but then again, it may not. So that's her sort of white rose uh, weaving in with uh, George W. Bush. Again, like kind of of the weird, like sort of symbolical free association tone of Honiger's book, but yeah. an interesting part nonetheless. a little bit and this isn't exhaustive in terms of everybody who's involved but I think this is a person that's kind of an interesting window um, in, into this whole network is uh, a gentleman uh, named Count Alexandre de Maranchet who at the time was the head of the French intelligence service the DGESE and was a close personal friend of William Casey. And Robert Perry talks about him quite a bit in his book as somebody who basically would have had the means, motive, and opportunity to help broker and set up some of these secret meetings, um, you know, down to the level of, like, providing security and, you know, uh, discreet ways of getting in and out of the country for people like Casey or Bush or Donald Gregg. Um, but uh, as I just said, he was a count and like an old, old kind of old money, uh, high society Frenchman who was uh, virulently anti-communist and I guess pro what he would call Western civilization and was a similar mind of uh, to Bill Casey in terms of uh, being very concerned about Soviet encroachment and, um, you know, like we said before, like a lot of the technocrats were kind of 
poo-pooing um, the idea that, you know, uh, either that it was, that the Soviet Union would collapse on its own accord. They certainly didn't think that. But also that we should, like, go to extraordinary measures to make them collapse. But de Manchet was definitely on on that tip. So he definitely had some meetings in 19, earlier in 1980 with Bill Casey. But I just wanted to read, like, a little passage from Trick or Treason and basically uh, that, that sort of sketches out his worldview and maybe is a sort of omen of things that would come later in the 1980s when Reagan won. I guess I'll start here that uh, in de Manche's book, The Fourth World War, creepy, de Manche cited the, quote, code of silence that a senior intelligence official accepts, quote, it is as profound as any blood fealty sworn by a tribal chieftain, he said. The knowledge and power wielded by those in my chosen profession are accompanied by a need to guard our crown jewels in the most profound secrecy. In the book, de Manchet gave the reader a glimpse of a few jewels, but always in settings favorable to conservative causes. He described his post-election meeting with Reagan in California when the spy chief lectured the president-elect about the coming apocalypse. De Moranchet said he warned Reagan, an interested student, about the growing dangers of international communism and third world terrorism. At another session after Reagan entered the White House, De Moranchet stressed the need for a bold and imaginative action to protect Western interests. He then outlined a plan dubbed Operation Mosquito, which involved a joint U.S.-French covert action to smuggle drugs into Afghanistan to addict the Soviet soldiers. Quote, if this works, you will upset the Russians, de Manchet said, he told the president. There will be considerable pressure on them to pack up and go home and to avoid moral and physical disintegration. The French spymaster said an enthusiastic Reagan quickly reached for the secure phone to call Casey. <laughs> uh, de Manchet wrote that Casey then asked the French spy chief to undertake the drug operation. With discreet White House backing, Operation Mosquito was put in place, but ultimately was dropped for fear of public disclosure, de Manchet said. Okay, likely story. Still in their commitment to aggressive covert operations against the Soviets, Casey, Reagan, and Dermanche appeared to have been of like minds. Uh, in his book, Dermanche also praised President Bush for his work at the CIA in 1966-77 and for his understanding that intelligence operations must be performed with utmost secrecy. In an early meeting with Bush in 1976, Dermanche proposed, quote, some joint system of cooperation with the Americans, similar to the loose working arrangements we had with our European allies. Bush was sympathetic but cautious, Demaranche noted. Now, I think that's interesting because uh, there was something that I think maybe we'll, we'll we'll get to at a later date called the Safari Club that was inaugurated right. while Bush was CIA director that involved, uh, it involved, I believe, Saudi Arabia, Israel, yeah. Pakistan, and notably France and the United States to create a sort of loose network, a joint system of cooperation um, and Iran. Uh, and Iran, you're right, yeah, yeah, because this was before the Iranian Revolution. So the Safari Club was already in existence. Uh, of course, you know, Bush got drummed out of the CIA when Carter and Stanfield Turner came in. But one of the, the subtexts of that is that there were 800 or so pissed off career CIA people that had just been laid off and, who, and a CIA director that had just been laid off. And... 
the kind of foundation for what be, would become Iran-Contra in the 80s was sort of laid out throughout the late 70s and the Carter administration in a very kind of loose, informal kind of way. And perhaps you could look at like the October surprise of 1980 as one of the first big operations to kind of get back in the driver's seat and like retake power in the most powerful Western country. And then it was kind of off to the races after that. So I think it's so typical. Everyone always describes like Bush was sympathetic, but cautious, you know? Uh, so I'm sure DeMarnche is like protecting his friend. Yeah. He actually said in 1992, Robert Perry recounts in, I think, the final chapter that DeMarnche uh, strenuously, I think he, he did lend credence to Bill Casey being involved in some kind of October surprise negotiation, but he strongly denied that Bush had anything to do with it. But in 1992, at like a book signing, he refused to answer any questions about the October surprise because he said he, quote, like, didn't want to hurt my good friend George Bush. So people were kind of scratching their heads a little bit like, well, if he had nothing to do with it, then why we're talking about it? maybe he just meant that, you know, these rumors would get dredged up. But um, it definitely seems like this guy is like a very top player. And um, yeah, I mean, yeah. he was the one who really organized the safari club to begin with was Damar and Shay. Uh, and he actually came up with a name, which makes sense for someone uh, who's French, a uh, very uh, French thing to be Le super safari, into safari. Safari club. Uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, la, yeah. La canga, les elephants. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Actually, so. the, the original charter. You're right. Like he initiated the pact, and the the first five countries were France, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Morocco, and Iran. And uh, the charter begins, recent events in Angola and other parts of Africa have demonstrated the continent's role as a theater for revolutionary wars prompted and conducted by the Soviet Union, which utilizes individuals or organizations sympathetic to or controlled by Marxist ideology. Good. Yeah. Um. Uh, and he, he was, he spoke full in American English because his mother was American. So he had like clear, you know, very strong ties to, to the United States. Uh -huh, um, uh -huh. yeah, and of course I, I'm just going through the safari club I actually wasn't I knew he was involved in it I wasn't aware that he was like the main mover and shaker of this so it's funny mm -hmm. that he doesn't he steers very far clear of mentioning the safari club when he talks to Robert Perry but uh, yeah the safari club takes its name after the exclusive resort in Kenya where the group first met in 1976 the club was operated by who else Saudi arms dealer Adnan Khashoggi um, and of course Adnan Khashoggi is going to like come up big time in Iran-Contra. He was also a good friend, a mover and shaker in the 1980s with a certain President Trump um, mm. who bought Khashoggi's yacht uh, in the late 80s. I think we mentioned that before. And also important to note that the creation of the Safari Club coincided with the consolidation of the Bank, and Credit, uh, Bank of Credit and Commerce International, BCCI, uh, which served to launder money, particularly for Saudi Arabia and the United States. Um, uh, and, you know, the CIA director in 1976, George H.W. Bush, had a personal account at uh, BCCI. And uh, there's a quote here. It says, the Safari Club needed a network of banks to finance its intelligence operations. With the official blessing of George Bush as head of the CIA, Adham transformed a small Pakistani merchant bank, the Bank of Credit and Commerce International, into a worldwide money laundering machine, buying banks around the world in order to create the biggest clandestine money network in history. 
so yeah, this is like, I think it was like the Bank of Crooks and Criminals International was the joke title of it. Really critical to Iran-Contra's, like all of the Iran-Contra operations and was tied in with uh, financing like kind of terrorism, first of the sort of Afghan, the Arab-Afghan variety, Mujahideen, mm-hmm. but then later elsewhere, uh, you know, people like Lichio Jelly and P2, uh, the Central American death squads, like drug trafficking, all of this stuff. So I think it's really interesting that Mr. Safari Club, Dimanche, came up with this idea in 1981 called Operation Mosquito, which was specifically consciously to flood an area filled with an enemy population and to get them addicted to drugs to undermine their discipline and community because it just seems strangely similar to the flooding of crack cocaine onto the streets of like every major like yeah. black neighborhood in every city in the United States good point. in the 1980s yeah. and to, to like unleash drugs. I mean, it's not a new concept. We go back to the opium wars, uh, the idea of weaponizing drugs to kind of undermine a uh, specific, you know, population that you want to subjugate. But, uh, but, and it's interesting that Reagan was so <laughs> just like was beaming, like jumped for the phone to call Casey to tell him about this great idea to um to hook soviet soldiers on it's kind of weird they wanted to import drugs because afghanistan was one of the largest opium you know manufacturers in the entire world yeah um this is an interesting uh thing as well uh from this is from a wapo article from uh 1984 um, which is uh, it's t- entitled uh, USIA, uh, and the in- information agency mm-hmm. is urged to call USSR Soviet Empire. Mm. Uh, Charles Z. Wick, the irrepressible director of the U.S. Information Agency, was discussing high strategy of their day with his number two man, Leslie Lenowski, and the former head of French intelligence, Count Alexandre de Marinche. Hmm. This was it was a most solemn session, duly chronicled in a 17-page transcript intended for official eyes only. Putting first things first, the Marinche brought up the Soviet Union. It should not be called the Soviet Union, he said. He told Wick the USIA should always say Soviet Empire. Then the problem came up of what to call the Soviet Defense Minister, Dmitry Ustinov. I don't like the word defense when you're talking about the Russians, said the Marinche's. <laughs> uh, Minister of War, Wick asked. I was going to say that he would be called the Minister of War. Minister of Global Aggression, the Count suggested. <laughs> that is what he really is. Speaking of war, he reminded the USIA policymakers that their agency is responsible for the War of Ideas, declared the Marinche. I would say that we haven't lost the War of Ideas. We haven't even fought it. Now, what this kind of warfare tells us, don't worry too much about hitting the body. Go in through the eyes and the ears. But the best place to hit the poles, he said, was in the stomach. The USIA should bear down on Poland's food problems, he said. Mm -hmm. Lack of food should be associated with communist ideas, Mm -hmm. something that we still see today. Demar and Shea urge, I think simple things like this, Charles, are absolutely of paramount importance. And if we don't do this, why do the rest? This is absolutely, I think, vital. Do you agree? Lenowski quickly agreed. I think you are absolutely right, he said. Wick later made a comment which can only be classified as mystifying. I think you can, without bilaterals, be provocative, he said. The Marinche got back to nomenclature. The voice of America's name should be changed, he said. I am not sure I would call it the voice of America. Too late now, interjected an unidentified voice. Undeterred, the Count suggested that the VOA be renamed the Voice of Liberty. Lenowski had something to say about the nature of the Soviet adversary. 
I had a friend who said whenever you want to evaluate a Russian behavior, you need not only a chess expert, but a magician, a functional paranoid, etc. <laughs> uh, all right. Despite the perplexity and perversity of the Soviet Union, despite his dissatisfaction with the U.S. nomenclature, Dimanche said he saw a light in the horizon. One day, he said, they will be Russia again. Unidentified oh. voice. You mean the historical Russia? Dimanche is the power will break. Voice. We have got to liberate those people. Let's. Uh, oh god yeah. Yes, uh, yeah i noticed that i it always triggers me a little bit when throughout the cold war particularly these right-wing anti-communist people like almost pathologically refer to the soviet union as russia and russians mm-hmm. and it's like i get it like yeah they're majority russian but like um that's not what their country's called like there's other stop erasing like kazakhs and ukrainians soviet um, empire Soviet uh, Empire. That also uh, lines up with a quote from Robert Perry's book where he says that um, in kind of meeting with Casey, uh, de Moranche wanted the Western alliance to enter a crusade against its enemies on, quote, the battlefield of the mind. There he believed yeah. an enemy could be confused and defeated through stealth and deception rather than through force alone. And, yeah, that's exactly what they kind of started to do. I think we see a real explosion of both, like, hot proxy war and international crime and mind war in the 1980s, which, like, we'll probably talk in our next... Like, that, that, that is something that actually the Peter Schweitzer book, Victory, goes into to an extreme detail, uh, also putting the pressure on Poland as kind of the most vulnerable uh, point of, like, the Soviet alliance to basically uh, ratchet up the misery and like basically deny them any kind of economic aid and like try to exacerbate the problems while also spending literally uh, billions of dollars covertly supporting solidarity solidarność Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and this was like a huge thing um with william casey who of course was like a, a a pretty devout catholic and uh he he tried to get the vatican in on this right away but actually pope john paul ii uh, despite being a Polish Catholic himself, only wanted to stick to kind of indirect influence because the church, in an interesting twist, um, of course you had like the Vatican Bank P2 people who were very, you know, uh, willing to support terrorism and the mafia and stuff. But um, but John Paul II did not want to, to the church to be seen as, uh, as antagonizing the situation and trying to escalate it. And they certainly did not want to be associated with the CIA because, you know, they have a reputation to protect. And it actually, um, it was after William Casey went to Rome the first time and tried to get an audience with the Pope, but he was uh, instead given an audience with the Vatican's foreign minister, who basically told him at the end of the meeting, was kind of nice to him, but then said uh, what he asked, like, when will I get to meet the Pope? Uh, He said uh, that he's not the happening, Uh, you know, and basically said, like, you know, it's not going to happen. And then Weirdly, uh, maybe just like a month or two after that, um, a crazy uh, Turkish gray wolf assassin uh, shot (laughs) the Pope in public. Um, Uh And there was all this like disinfo that basically that I think ended up getting believed by the Vatican that actually the Bulgarian KGB was behind this assassination plot. So then after the Pope had been shot and this kind of conspiracy theory that the KGB tried to assassinate him gained traction within the Vatican, that is when Pope John Paul basically decided to 
more closely collaborate with the U.S. government and uh, and try to kind of destabilize Poland and provide mm -hmm. covert support to uh, Solidarność. And actually, an a really interesting twist that I didn't know about that's in the Victory book that they brag about a lot is that <clears throat> the main um, pipeline for getting like top secret radio equipment and uh, and other supplies that would have raised suspicion into the country was done through Israeli rat lines in Poland. Mm. So actually, the Israelis were a critical node in Poland to basically funding and supporting, providing covert support to the Solidarność uh, revisionists. Um, so you see the same networks at play here. They're all kind of working on multiple fronts at the same time. And um, and even in ways that you might not, like maybe you would think like the Vatican would be more out front, you know, the Polish Catholic Pope would here's be a, leading the charge. But Here's a really interesting article related to what you're talking about uh, called Former Spy Says He Warned the Vatican of Assassination Try. This is from the Wall Street Journal on August 8th, 1985. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll recognize one of the names here from what we talked about earlier. Uh, well, a few of the names, I guess. Mm -hmm. With the propensity for being at the scene of impending scandal, Francesco Pezienza recently popped up in the case of the assassination attempt on Pope John Paul II on May 1981. So that's uh, Licio Gelli's, like, right-hand man, according to Oh, her. yeah, At the continuing trial of the Bulgarian officials in Rome, the judge attempted to quiet the courtroom June 19th by shouting, Patience, or an Italian, Pazienza. At this point, the star prosecution witness, Mehmet Ali Aga, uh, yeah, yeah, Aja, yeah. the one-time Turkish neo-Nazi already convicted of shooting the Pope, interjected, yes, Francesco Pazizenza, asked to explain Mr. Agja made headlines here and in Italy by saying that in 1982, Mr. Pazizenza had, had come to him in prison offering freedom if he would implicate the Bulgarians in the crime, as he has. Mm. Mr. Pazienza, who had left his job with SISMI, the Italian spy agency, in 1981, says he never met Mr. Agja, uh, but was involved, AGCA, in case anyone wants to look it up, but was involved in the case uh, in other ways involving the spreading of information on terrorism. Ironically, neither of their former SISMI officers face charges that they illegally use SISMI to try and blame right-wing terrorism on leftists. Yeah, yeah uh, that, that was like such a, a common tactic of Licio Gelli and the propaganda due kind of operators was to do terrorism and then blame it on the Red Brigades or the KGB. Yeah. This is like a constant like strategy of tension gladio thing. And so... I wonder, yeah. like, to what extent was it influenced? Because, uh, of course, around, like, 1981, 82, you had the Vatican Bank scandal, and um, that, that Bankers of God movie kind of goes into it in more detail. But you see that there's a real interesting, like, power play going on between um, uh, Archbishop Mar Paul Marcinkus, played by Ru Rucker Hauer, um, and uh, some other officials within, like, the Vatican hierarchy. And he eventually ended up kind of getting, like, sent back, like, kind of fleeing to America to avoid prosecution. And he ended up getting kind of drummed out of, uh, of the church and all this stuff. But I wonder uh, to what extent was the reluctance of John Paul II to uh, fully commit to, like, CIA covert operations and, like, uh, illegal, you know, uh, parapolitical activities maybe had something to do with a Turkish neo-Nazi taking a shot at him? Yeah, uh, this article actually gets more interesting because uh, Mr. Pazienza says 
that as a terrorism expert for uh, SISMI, uh, S-I-S-M-I, uh, he and his close associate, Alexandre de Marchais, the now oh. retired head of French intelligence, <laughs> he retired because, uh, you know, the socialist French president uh, who was wrong. elected. Yeah, 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 he appointed, like, a bunch of communists, like, to work in the intelligence agency. So he was, like, he stormed out, you know. But anyway, uh, so uh, he said that he and Mar- de Marchais warned the Vatican of an impending Soviet attack on the Pope oh. six months before... Uh, wow. but you know, just, mm, you know, yes. these guys are, these uh, guys are just, uh, they're, they're so good at being spies. They just, you know, they felt yes. it in the air, I guess. Uh, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Michael Ledeen, Pazizenza and Mr. Demarche, uh, and Arnaud de Borchgrave, you know, they became in 1981, the three leading journalistic exponents of the theory that the Soviet Union was responsible for Western European terrorism. Um, <laughs> that was another, yes. I mean it's it's amazing and then you see this repeat throughout the 80s where Cuba and like Nicaragua are fingered as the number one drug traffickers it's kind of like today when literally every American politician just repeats the bullshit lie that Iran is the number one sponsor, state sponsor of terrorism yeah. in the world. it's just like so objectively not true unless you expand the definition of terrorism to the point that it's meaningless Mm-hmm. Um, it's like obviously Saudi Arabia, if you're talking about at least that it, sort of Islamic quote unquote terrorism, like it's obviously Saudi Arabia and probably like Qatar is second place and actually probably the US more than anybody and maybe the yeah. UK and France, like all well, the, the, but it's like such projection. Again terrorism doesn't mean anything like terrorism is like a meaningless term that is in itself like loaded and like is, uh, overdetermined. Like, if it just means like the use of violence to like cause fear like that it, it's like you know of course the u.s is the largest like sponsor of terrorism like if yeah. it means targeting civilians like same thing like yeah or the, they're the biggest terrorists like the like yeah. there's no real like stable meaning of this like yeah. it's just a and i would say like, that you know, i mean if we want to delegitimize violence like as yeah. a propaganda technique uh, yeah like if if we want to like even stick with a kind of normative definition of terrorism all the people we've talked about in this episode are literally the biggest terrorists of like the late 20th <laughs> century and like yeah. are kind of like an almost like a mega network of like international terrorists that are kind of pulling the strings. I mean, just to quote Demarinche one more time, um, he wrote. Well, he wrote, I think, in his book that I believe in the raison d'état, which may outweigh <laughs> any conventional morality. As one of the longest-standing leaders of Western intelligence, I have learned that there are two sorts of history. There is the history we see and hear, the official history, and there is the secret history, the things that happen behind the scenes in the dark that go bump in the night. As a player in the first and a manipulator in the second, I have attempted to bring my work the kind of understanding of both aspects of history. So, like, you know, he's basically telling you right there that he's, uh, like, well, first of all, that he believes in la raison d'etat, might outweigh any conventional morality so he's already telling you right off the bat that you have to put that aside um and may possibly be willing to do some of the worst things imaginable (laughs) as long basically i mean the ultimate straw man about like communist countries is like they think the end justifies the means well uh what the fuck is this like i mean this is like the ultimate ends justifying the means of like we can work with nazis uh we can run pedo rings we can do drug trafficking we can target like racist in a racist way like target populations we don't like uh we can flood regions with drugs we can do 
tons of white collar crime and money laundering. We can constantly lie to the people that elected us. It's like the most satanic shit ever, but it is okay because, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's Sava because they're doing it for Western civilization. Sava. <laughs> um, yeah. Just come see, come saw. What's the big deal? Yeah, you know? it's just come see, come saw. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I mean, I guess actually, like, Oh, well, according to Wikipedia, I'm seeing this now on Wikipedia, on the Wikipedia article for Demanche, but according to, to this article, his book, The Fourth World War, had like a renaissance among American elites uh, after 9-11 because it was seen as being prescient of the role oh, of terrorism, you know, so people were once again picking it up and saying, oh, he was right all along, you know, he... Uh, so yeah, these, all these uh, Bush administration adjacent Nazis could just—they uh, could just smell it in the air. They just knew it was coming. Um, yeah, it's a, a pretty—you know—I'm willing to believe that all these people, uh, you know, were were doing something. It, it is completely in line with their mo and what they wanted and what they ended up getting. And it's like it's kind of amazing that this would still be poo pooed. But also mm-hmm. not surprising because uh, Bush just had this uh, this stranglehold basically on like I don't know I mean and and Demarche mentions literally almost like mind war, and I mm, think that yeah. that <clears throat> that had so much to do with their strategy in the eighties of changing. I think as as Don Draper said once, if you don't like what's being said, change the conversation. And they did kind of successfully do that. Um, I just want to mention one other thing we forgot to get to earlier is like there's a sub scandal within the October surprise or related to the 1980 campaign that was called uh, at the time debate gate. And there was actually a congressional investigation into it where basically somebody stole Carter's debate prep book uh, before one of the presidential debates and it wound up in possession of the Reagan Bush campaign and nobody could quite figure out why. Robert Perry's book said that a congressional investigation indicated that it was probably Bill Casey or James Baker III, H.W.'s consigliere, um, who orchestrated the theft of Carter's debate book. And that's just another thing that's just kind of like, whatever, like, it just, uh, what's the big deal? So Reagan went into the debates with Carter knowing all of his points and tactics and what he was going to do. Uh, kind of reminds you of, like, Hillary and Bernie in the primaries. Mm-hmm. Similar yeah. trick. So, you know, I mean, they, they it, it certainly seems like they were willing to do, like, whatever it took to get themselves into the White House. And then once they got in there, they certainly rearranged a lot of the furniture and put their stamp on the place. And we will will dive very deeply into that next week. Um, But maybe I think, maybe now is a good time to sort of like wind this up. Yeah. uh, Is there anything else that you want to mention um no i think we covered a lot of ground we talked about fire club we talked about demarche we talked about propaganda due mm-hmm. um yeah i think that uh, we even talked about john hinckley jr's islamic guerrilla army connections yeah, we got exactly and he was uh the the real weird thing about john hinckley was that i think his brother was having um dinner with one of george bush's sons 
not mm. George W., but like it was Jonathan Bush maybe or Neil. Mm. Uh, yeah. Either like the night before like the shooting happened, which it, which means that the Hinckleys and the Bushes knew each other. So the Hinckleys were like a wealthy family, and right. I guess John was just this like wayward, wacky uh, kind of black sheep son maybe. But <clears throat> I mean, who would who would benefit from Reagan getting shot? like one year into his presidency yeah true i mean mm-hmm. and somebody who might even have a little bit of a track record of getting rid of certain presidents yeah well i guess when god shone that light down on him uh he was protected from uh, the bullets so yeah that plot yeah, was uh, i guess, I guess. Foiled. But, uh, <laughs> i'm glad we yeah. have that nugget of information about honiger because i've wondered about her for years she's a name i discovered a long time ago and she you know she did work with may russell and, and may brussel in the 80s yeah uh, she's thanked in her book but I, I especially when i started to see her later stuff with like insisting that like a particle beam weapon is what took down the world trade center yeah. and I, I forget if she's a no planer or not but um, she was like in that 9-11 truth mix uh, yeah she definitely is some of the more bold and kind of like eye rolling kind of claims that you know to her are absolutely like you're a limited hangout if you're not talking about directed energy weapons and mm-hmm. yeah and, and yeah still has this reverence for Ronald Reagan which uh, I think you see a lot on the right with people that have been I guess maybe it, it was just inevitable that George H.W. Bush was going to get singled out as, like, a sketch character. Mm-hmm. But you could still hold that hope for Ronnie, right. Ronnie, the sacred cowboy, mm-hmm. who, you know, just wanted to make America great again. And I am not... Though I don't think he was, like, you know, involved to the kind of um, granular level that people like Bill Casey and Donald Gregg or Richard Allen or George Bush were in. He he's the kind of guy that when, um, you know, some French spy shows up and tells you about Operation Mosquito to get all the Soviet soldiers addicted to heroin, he like <laughs> jumps for the phone to call Bill Casey to tell him to do yeah. it. So, you know, or just, just like, hey, Mr. President, should we like do whatever we can to support the Contras? Like, OK. And then, you know, they go off and mine the harbors and, you know, train death squads and bring a million yeah. tons of cocaine into America. And, you know, who knows? Maybe he was going senile. Maybe it was a kind of, um, you know, uh, keeping it compartmentalized so you wouldn't have a Nixon repeat where the president knew something. Uh, it's hard to say, but I think it's safe to say that, like, we, I don't know if we should, like, let St. Ronnie off the hook. Yeah. And certainly not. I certainly don't think that God uh, approved of Ronald Reagan. <laughs> Uh, I that's my take on the issue. I would say um, uh, no. I do not think that God parted the heavens to bless Ronald Reagan while he was giving his, uh, you know, inaugural address. Um, I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say and say that. But maybe um, the party of God, Hezbollah. Was oh yeah, it all, right. And of course. We can blame it all on, on the swarthy on those other cunning Iranians. Yeah. Whether it be the cun- whether it be the cunning Persians or the uh, the swarthy Israelis, you know, it was all yeah. their doing, and and our our benighted waspy elites had nothing to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was. Uh, yeah, definitely. Her book was very much heavily on the on the Iranian stuff and some of the like, you know. Yeah, the the swarthy the swarthier you were, like the more implicated uh, I think you were in the whole thing. But uh, <laughs> yeah, although you know uh, a lot of those other guys came off badly. Uh, but 
Yeah, you know, some of this actually kind of reminded me of, like, the Summerton Man thing. Like, uh, you know, just in terms of, like, the networks. It was, like, that mysterious murder where that dude was found, like, on a beach uh, in, uh, I guess it was the Summerton Park Beach, uh, which is why he's called that. But, like, he's still an unidentified corpse, and no one knows, like, who he was. And he had, like, a mysterious uh, cutout of a a sort of a a rare printing of uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam uh, in his, like, pocket. Uh, they mm. just said, like, Tamam Shud, which is, like, you know, finished or ended, like, it, it is huh. completed. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's, like, unknown, like, who he was, his like, speculation. I mean, this was a while, like, you know, this was a while before any of these events. It was, like, in 1948. Oh, okay. uh, but, like, the weird, like, links with, like, the sort of Persian intelligence and stuff, like, going, like, far back and things like that. It just, yeah, <laughs> uh, some of this, like, you know, made me think of uh, that stuff as, like, uh, it's interesting to think of that, like, through uh iran contra it's very like um you know uh distant in time but it's interesting Mm -hmm. to uh consider some of these like deep connections like the ones uh you know that were kind of cemented in the safari club and some of them that might have existed and propaganda due among like the sort of iranian intelligence and and savak with some of these groups yeah 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 definitely Yeah, Yeah. yeah and we will i think next week we're going to get into the actual um kind of contra part more of the contra yeah. part of the iran because i think honestly i think that the contra half is more shocking and disturbing and kind of totally like criminal in a, in a way that you could you could come up for excuses why people would be covertly selling arms to iran for geopolitical reasons and yeah. it's not a great thing to do but is it the most kind of satanic thing you could imagine no i mean it's like we went we were supporting the shah and that was totally okay even though he was you know murdering and torturing people um so i think and i i noticed that like all even calling it iran contra there was always an emphasis in the mainstream media when they finally did report on it that it was all about like this iran thing because they're supposed to be our the bad guys they're supposed to be our enemies there was like this obsession over like well mr reagan like you are a big tough guy but here you are like like selling weapons to the bad people and i I feel like that was a very establishment friendly way of looking at iran contra whereas Mm -hmm. if like if you focused more on like the contras and the death squads and the drug trafficking that's like holy shit and that affects people in the united states like way more profoundly and led so directly to like horrible crimes and murder and death and rape and everything that um and is so obviously like uh, an expression of imperialism and us like doing really horrible things to like crush countries that want different political systems than the ones we want and um exactly just like the whole aspect of like iran or selling weapons to them just goes to show like the hypocrisy and like the cynicism of their uh you know superficial politics and all this like it's just a test and these things yeah they don't necessarily map like clearly onto like uh you know the sort of like u.s versus iran or even the sort of iranian paradigm of like the great you know shaitan and the you know shaitan al-akbar that type of thing Mm -hmm. like 
there's you know these sort of networks that these people were embedded in like a lot of the time they snake across like these sort of uh grand geopolitical alignments uh sure you know for you could whatever. you could yeah. almost guarantee then, it, it was almost like a good cover for like the worst parts of the scandal where it's like how what are people supposed to think when they find out that like israel was covertly in on this and like they're supposed yeah. to be the ultimate enemies and like it, i think it's just meant to kind of like make people scratch their heads a little bit and be like, huh, I guess this is just, this is what politics is. Like, this is just some crazy geopolitics makes strange bedfellows. And, you know, it, it's a little, yeah. little unseemly that they all lied about it, but you can kind of understand why they would. And, um, I mean, even calling the book trick or treason, I guess that would be the logical kind of conclusion you would ask, like, is this treason? Um, mm -hmm. I think for most Americans, the more relevant thing is that they, like, manipulated, I guess they, like, delayed the release of the hostages. Um, mm -hmm. Though I think the odds that the hostages were going to, like, die or something like that was yeah, probably low. Uh, right. I mean, you know, you could make the argument that, like, they were. But it feels a little Russia-gatey in terms of, like, you're not listening to our intelligence services, Mr. President. Like, yeah. you know, like, you need to protect American lives at all costs. And, like, right. you played politics with the hostages. And th that in a kind of very establishment kind of way that, you know, you could yeah, see how true. that is kind of, oh, that would that would count as like a mark against yeah. you. And it's true. And I think that even in Russiagate, there were some there were angles they could have taken that would have been like better uh, or more effective and also like more uh, like important and like more like vindicated uh, or mm -hmm. more justified than like what they did. But yeah, they just love to be like, sir, like, how mm -hmm. dare you? Like, you know, you disrespected Colonel Vinman or like whatever, you know, <laughs> like uh, that's a, yeah, yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. Like, I think that uh, even the whole thing of like one day, like they'll be Russia again, you know, like they'll be uh -huh. like, uh, like a fascist, like oligarchy or whatever, like once again, <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, there's even, uh, agencies like within, you know, the whole, like the map, like the, ge like the geography of it, like is very like, uh, what's the best way to put it? It's like rhizomatic, you know, it's not mm -hmm. necessarily like, you know, this, uh, place versus this place you know it's uh, yeah you know, yeah the, and i think maybe it's interesting that michael ledeen was involved in all this stuff and then ended up buddying up with general flynn who was kind of the most significant government official to kind of push a certain like conservative rapprochement with russia uh, mm -hmm. you know, circa five years ago and, and kind of got like hosed for it and like thrown in jail for a little while. But I think that he's one, I think that kind of sums up like his mentality and maybe like a Michael Dean kind of thing of like, you know, like we made Russia like capitalist and Christian again. Yeah. So therefore like we ought to, and I'm sure if they were able to overthrow the government of Iran and put some kind of Western puppet in their place. God, I don't even, be, it's so awful to contemplate. Like, yeah, you know, they would be back uh, on the loving Iran train, which they were on prior to 1979. I, I mean, mean, all these people had very strong ties with Iran and were, you know, appreciated their culture. But, you know, I think that kind of, um, the, the degree to which you're an other is definitely contingent on yeah. your political relationship with the U.S. Even some of these dudes like Abu Hassan, Bonnie Sauter, I feel like now he's all about, like, being on the grift of, like, you know, uh, the regime is going to collapse, like, any day now, and, like, uh -huh. we need to get, like, such and such, like, in there. Like, I mean, obviously, we talked about his MEK connections, and, like, that's, uh, you know, one of the big 
uh, boosters in the United States of that type of thing. It's been deep in the, the world of, like, you know, Iran commentary and, uh, you know, uh, always yeah, sharing their views on, um, you know, what needs to happen for the future of Iran. But, yeah, like, uh, mm-hmm. it's, yeah, uh, for sure. And there's definitely, like, that type of thing, like, uh, uh, circulating around. Yeah, it just your head spins when you really just start thinking about all of the, like, ridiculous things you've heard about, like, America's, like, designs for the future of Iran or what, like, needs to needs to happen. It's just, like, it's just, like, an absurd arrogance that uh, is just tolerated in American society where it's, like, pontificating about, like, what should happen to yeah, Iran. is yeah. just, like, so normal. But anyway, yeah. Unfortunately, uh, they've racked up quite a bit of experience in toppling, yeah. like, every Eastern Bloc country now. So they, they feel like maybe they have, a, you know, a roadmap towards, a, you know a westernization roadmap probably really to like steal all their resources and like gut their public sectors and reduce them to a vassal state which is pretty much what exclusively happens to all countries that have like defected to the western camp or they just become like a a tourist trap country uh in the yeah (laughs) it's a tragic situation like you know uh yeah, the fate of, I mean, you can see the fate of the GCC countries, you know, not that they were ever, like, beacons of, like, you know, autonomy or whatever, but, you know, it's just, yeah. Uh, yeah, that yeah, the, the heavy yeah. influence of being tied to the Great Satan. Yeah, it they're takes definitely in the throes of the Great there, Satan. It comes yeah. at a cost. Um, and you can see the, you know, the history being written, the, you know, the, the, super, the surface history being written, like, uh, you know, the great uh, spiritual custodians of the two holy mosques, you know, reputed mm-hmm. the anti-Semitic idea of Palestine or whatever and showed <laughs> that this hatred does not represent Islam, you know, oh, like, yeah. just like, so, yeah. yeah. Um, the Fourth Reich yeah. of Palestine was crushed by an international <laughs> alliance. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, despicable. Oh, God. Um, oh we're yeah. going to, yeah, next week we're going to find even more Nazis uh, involved in this whole, this whole web. Um, yeah. But uh, but I think for now, I'll leave it there. Um, so, yeah, next public episode next week is going to be uh, a part two about the real the real meat of Iran-Contra and what, you know, what kind of world all these sketchy characters won by doing the October Surprise Yeah. in 1980. Yeah. So we will see you all then. Um, or subscribe to Alwara. You know, yes, we're doing an Alwara episode Frequency. On uh, yes. We will see you before then. We got a couple, maybe a little two-part bonus episode um, yeah. that might have dropped by the time we post this, but going to yeah. be some, some good, juicy, dark content out there. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah, you can go to uh, patreon.com slash jihad and get on that frequency. But... If not, uh, come back next time for part two, Smuggler's Blues. <laughs> and um, until then, dear listeners, stay vigilant. Peace. Well, the first thing I want to say is mandate my ass. Because it seems as though we've been convinced that 26% of the registered voters Not even 26% of the American people, but 26% of the registered voters form a mandate or a landslide. 21% voted for Skippy and 
Hollywood tough demand is cheap steak 
tough and Bonzo substantial. The ultimate in synthetic selling, a Madison Avenue masterpiece, a miracle, a cotton candy politician, pesto macho. Put your orders in America, and quick as Kodak, your leaders duplicate with the accent being on the dupes. Because all of a sudden we have fallen prey to selective amnesia, remembering what we want to remember and forgetting what we choose to forget. All of a sudden the man who called for a bloodbath on our college campuses is supposed to be Dudley goddamn do-right. You go give them liberals hell, Ronnie. That was the mandate to the new Captain Bly on the new ship of fools. It was doubtlessly based on his chameleon performance in the past as a liberal Democrat, as the head of the Studio Actors Guild. When other celluloid saviors were cringing in terror from McCarthy, Ron stood tall. It goes all the way back from Hollywood to Hillbilly, from liberals to libelists, from Bonzo to Birch Idol, born again. Civil rights, women's rights, gay rights, it's all wrong. Call in the cavalry to disrupt this perception of freedom gone wild. God damn it, first one wants freedom, then the whole damn world wants freedom. Nostalgia, that's what we want. The good old days, when we gave them hell. When the buck stopped somewhere and you could still buy something with it. To a time when movies was in black and white, and so was everything else. Even if we go back to the campaign trail, before Six Gun Ryan shot off his face and developed hoof and mouth. Before the free press went down before full court press and were reluctant to view the menu because they knew the only thing available was Crow. Lon Chaney, our man of a thousand faces. No match for Ron. Doug Henning does the makeup. Special effects from Grecian Formula 16 and Crazy Glue. Transportation furnished by the David Rockefeller Remote Control Company. Their slogan is, why wait for 1984? You can panic now and avoid the rush. So much for the good news. As Wall Street goes, so goes the nation. And here's a look at the closing numbers. Racism is up. Human rights are down. Shaky war items are hot, the house claims all ties, jobs are down, money is scarce, and common sense is at an all-time low in heavy trading. Movies were looking better than ever, and now no one is looking because we're starring in a big movie. Yeah. 